it's only a kick, a jump, a block, it's only a serve, it's only a tackle, a run, it's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped, streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Hey, hey, it's Conrad Thompson, and you're listening to Grillin' JR with the voice of wrestling, the Hall of Famer himself, Mr. Jim Ross. Heavy on the Mr. Jim, how are you, man? I'm good, Conrad. Good, 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 buddy. I'm glad you are as well. I got good news for all the f- listeners out there. Uh, I WD 40 my chair this morning, so <laughs> there should be no squeaking as I rock back and forth when we're talking. So uh, that will be a relief to so many. That have commented that I needed to grease my frigging chair. So consider it done. And Conrad, just for another part of listeners, I'm going to try not to say, uh, too much. (laughs) I'm going to call it out, man. I'm going to challenge called out. So, uh, this will be good. I think I just said, uh, right there. The greatest wrestling broadcaster of all time criticized (laughs) for squeaky chairs and the word, uh, (laughs) <laughs> Boys and girls, welcome to wrestling podcasting. Welcome to grilling Jr. Today we're talking about a show that happened 20 years ago, fully loaded 2000. What a great time this was to be a WWF wrestling fan. We're fresh off of King of the ring 2000, which featured a main event with the undertaker Kane and the rock taking on triple H Vince and Shane McMahon, where the WWF title changed hands with the rock pinning Vince McMahon while triple H was the champion. We've covered that in the archives. Feel free to check it out. Uh, over at adfreeshows.com, but there is, uh, a lot of stuff bubbling under the surface that I do want to get into WWF cable programming is going to be moving from the USA network to Viacom stations, TNN and MTV. This is a big deal and it's going to be uh disastrous for ECW. It's such a long-term partner like USA to move into a new station like this. From your perspective, does that mean that you feel like you've got to sort of level up the programming? I mean, you want to impress that you want to show what your value is. You want to impress this new audience. You want to, uh, I mean, it feels like it's more than just, we're changing channels. We've got to come out swinging. Do we not? Yeah, absolutely. But the thing about it is, is that, you know, prior to going to leaving USA, we had a long run there with USA. So. All the players are still in place. Uh, it was a, a big move. I, I think at the time I thought it was a good move, quite frankly, 
because USA had been the home for, for our show for Monday night raw, certainly, uh, for many, many years. So, and as it's worked out, you know, uh, based on the last rights fee deal, uh, that, uh, WWE received from you at, you know, NBC universal, IE USA and Fox, uh, it worked out the best for, for everybody. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a crucial time. We knew we needed to come with our, with our a games every week, but I don't know that we changed Lawler and I never changed anything. We had a way we did it. We had a way we like, we were comfortable doing it. Uh, we thought that we were doing a, a decent job without question. So it was just a matter of all of us, everybody, wrestlers, referees, uh, writers, everybody to be bringing their a game every week. And, uh, but it was a red hot time for the business, man. It was that deal went through at a very opportune time, I think for our, for the broadcast partner, because we had a lot of talents that were starting to mature and that roster started to get better and better because the talents got better at what they do. So it was a very big move for us. And I think in the long run, the best move that uh, WWE could have made. Let's, um, let's also talk about you know, the, the sort of musical chairs that this could create, um, there's speculation that because the WWF is going to be on ECW's channel. Now TNN ECW needs to look for a new home. Um, at Meltzer would write at press time, USA network had not made a proposal to ECW, but feelers worsen out immediately upon the conclusion of the trial and meetings are expected later this week. Fox has also had discussions of late with both WCW and ECW. And when he reached out to Paul Heyman, um, Meltzer got this comment a week from now, I'll either be a chump or a champ. Did you have a, a concern that this might be the end of ECW when you guys made this move? Well, I want to retrace my steps a little bit. Uh, I was never overwhelmingly excited about moving to TNN because the strength of TNN's network versus the strength of USA is, uh, to me, it was not even a close horse race. So leaving USA was a tough pill to pill to swallow for me because I thought it was a stronger network of the two. But you, the overwhelming thing was was Viacom. This is in general because they own so many properties. You know, I'm I got a project. I'm working on some projects now with Viacom through through Simon and Schuster. So uh, if you got Viacom corporate involved. And you had a chance to do some, you know, I thought, well, maybe the salvation here will be that we'll get some specials on CBS or maybe do something on Showtime uh, that would compensate for going to a lesser watched network. So I was never overwhelmed with that deal, but the caveat was the money, obviously, number one, and the fact that you're going to be doing some business with Viacom and it gives you the potential to do something big, same way that Vince had it with when he worked with Eversoul on the Saturday night's main event. So a big network, they give you a one off here and there It's good exposure. So, uh, I wanted to make sure I clarified that situation. I was a USA network guy and loyal to that <clears throat> part of me, that, that network. And I thought it was the best network for us to be on, but, uh, you know, it, the money just uh, talked and we were coming off a, a, a record year. So the, again, the product was very, very hot. It was a hell of a lot of fun to be in that company at that point in time. No doubt about that. No matter the network. 
let's uh let's follow up on the the ecw thing did you think this was going to be the end i mean ecw had been you know struggling at different times to make payroll and 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 they're a company that's growing but perhaps growing too fast so they don't have the cash flow to, to float them you know for instance when a pay-per-view would happen they would hear they had a bunch of buys but as you know in this era it could take three four five even six months before you get paid but meanwhile you've got talent griping that they need to be paid and you had to sort of fork over a lot of those production expenses and satellite truck time and all that up front and now you've you've got this bill that sort of lingers out there. And if you're trying to pay them before you've got your money, it feels like you're constantly playing catch up. And I think that's what ECW found themselves in. And they took some figure deals and some magazine deals and some video game deals. And some of them were less favorable than others, but they were a means to an end to just keep the company afloat or that's what we've been led to believe. And so now when it feels like here in, in late summer, 2000, they're fixing to lose their TV deal too. This has to feel like disaster for the company. Yeah. <clears throat> Pardon me. <clears throat> Pardon me, Conrad. Yes, it was disaster. It was a death knell. You know, the two keys in pro wrestling, uh, are that you have to have in place to be successful and profitable are talent and television. Well, you know, Paul had a unique roster of talents, uh, that had, had developed cult followings through the opportunities they had on tele on TV. And so now they have a chance to get on a, a network that's on most basic cable systems. Very important to say the basic cable systems. A lot of them had TNN. So that was the lifeline that Heyman needed. And then, uh, and it, then it, the lifeline disappeared. So I, I, it was the, probably the biggest crushing element that ECW faced and, and they never were really able to rebound from it. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be really the end, uh, and, and that's unfortunate, but let's talk about the good fortune of the WWF, uh, Meltzer would write that, uh, for the fiscal year that ended on April 30th, the company is going to take in a record amount, 379 million. And you've got a before tax profit of 85.7 million, which is pretty remarkable. The same figures for the prior year, uh, top line was 251 million process that we go from 251 to 379 and their before tax profit. The prior year was 56.4 million. So we're going from a $56 million profit to an $85 million profit. This is just unreal money that no one in the wrestling business has ever come close to, including the WWF in the quote unquote heyday of the eighties, right? Yeah. Yeah. It was, a, it was a major, major money, big time. Uh, and you know, the, and we all shared in those profits, you know, the executive guys, uh, uh, like myself and Kevin Dunn, for example, among others, uh, you know, Vince took good care of us with stock. So we you know we got, we got great stock and, and, uh, options and grants. And quite frankly, Conrad, during that time, uh, I really kind of set my portfolio up to take care of me for the rest of my life, uh, cause the stock kept increasing and I had a lot of it and it didn't, I didn't pay for it. It was events took care of us. So, uh, when all the negative stories about him, uh, abound and during that period of time, he solidified my financial future 
over those, those few years there, uh, of the stock issues and things of that nature. So, uh, the better we did, the, the more we got paid, which is a great way to look at it. It's like a commission salesperson, like your mortgage guys, the more deals they close and they process, the more money they make. And I think that's a, a good philosophy for any of us that the more, the more productive we are, uh, the more opportunities we had to make additional cash. So it was uh, really a unique, uh, time and that the house show business was killing it, just killing it. And now that component for everybody, because of the virus in today's world is non-existent. There are no house shows. It's hard to believe that there's been pro wrestling. There are no live events and there, there just can't be. So, uh, it was a, it was a great time. It was a, a great time and I didn't really understand it all. <clears throat> I didn't understand the, the, all stock ramifications, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, I knew we had to be vested. That was a five-year plan. And that was smart events because you keep all these key people. They got to stay. Now you got to stay to get to, to realize your full complement of stock options and grants. So it was a new world for me. It's a long way from mid South. You know, we no kid. Yeah. The only stock we had was you know, animals, <laughs> pets, <laughs> livestock, cows, whatever. Uh, but it was good. It was a good, really a good time. And again, the talent started to kick ass. We had guys getting over like crazy. And, uh, so it was, it was a, it was a cool deal, man. I, I, that was probably one of my, that period was probably one of my favorite times. And some of us said, well, sure it is. You made more money. Absolutely. That's why I was there to make all the money I possibly could. So that you have some level of independence and security, which pro wrestling heretofore had never really offered. It's uh, it's pretty remarkable when you think about just how massive this was for so many people in the wrestling business. I mean, the, the company going public forever changed, not only the WWE, but the way wrestling was handled from, from then on. I mean, it just, it really leveled up the cash flow and. Let's talk about the impact of this television move, because obviously television rights, we know are, are a big thing and an even bigger thing in more recent years for WWE. Uh, it would be written in the observer USA network ran the numbers on matching Viacom's complete bid. And in doing so calculated, the network would lose more than 18 million over the next three years. If they did so, which resulted in attempting to keep the programming through an interpretation of the right to match any outside bid. Uh, in the contract. So the idea is, Hey, we'd like to keep you around cause you've been a good partner for us, but because Viacom is offering all these other income streams and revenue streams in order for us to match it, we would lose 18 million. So no Moss, he would also write heat will start on MTV in September while the other shows move to TNN. There's expected to be a ratings decline, although nobody can predict how severe in moving from the number one primetime cable network to TNN which ranked at number 15 among cable stations in prime time this past season. So we are going to a weaker station that has less penetration and certainly has worse ratings, but that's why they're willing to spend all the cash. Right, Jim. Yep. Yeah, exactly. Uh, the, the brand was a proven brand, Conrad, WWE is so solidified and solid, uh, especially in that point in time, going public was a smart move by Vince. Uh, it was a profitable move for all of us that were in, in that, uh, management loop. 
shall we say. And, uh, but it was a, again, it comes back to, it's all about the money, man, all about the money. But you know, I, my issue was not, I, I wasn't privy to all the exact dollars and cents, uh, like we're talking about now where all this information is public and here you go. Uh, I didn't, I had so much to say <clears throat> to take care of and say grace over that. I didn't, I didn't invest a lot of time in that, which maybe is not good. I don't know. It's, but I had other jobs to do. I had to announce a show. I had to book live events and had to manage contracts, hired, fire, all that crap. So, uh, I was more immersed in that than I was in doing the math on this contract. You just, all I did was put my faith in, in Vince and his, uh, his financial people that they were making the right decision. But again, uh, you know, you still got to justify going from the number one cable network to number 15. And, uh, but again, it came back to the money, all about the money. Let's, uh, let's talk about raw. Let's get on screen. Let's talk about what's happening on television. June 26th in Worcester. Uh, it's a sellout 10,829 fans, just a regular ass raw does a gate of $331,000. The show opens with a rock interview and Meltzer would write Vince came out and basically found religion. At least that's where I thought he was going. It was actually even sillier. He said he was going to go home to produce some more babies with Linda because he's a genetic jackhammer. Vince wants to shake hands with the rock, but rock gives him a rock bottom. Vince has bowed off of TV for the time being no more of that mill masker strutting for a while. <laughs> this is the first time we hear though, the, the phrase genetic jackhammer. I know in, in hindsight, some of this shit is so silly, but it did become a big part of the programming for a long time. People love that phrase, genetic jackhammer. Vince McMahon was the best heel of the attitude era. Yeah. In a story. Uh, and that's not to denigrate from the other guys that were in that role playing villains on TV. Uh, he was just the best at it. He, 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 now he, obviously he had control over the creative. He could book himself in a good way, but you still got to execute. I've seen a lot of wrestling promoters, uh, get themselves immersed in their own storylines that suck pond water, just horrible. He was perfect in that role. Uh, it's the same thing. I said, this to a lot of really great heels. You, you know, your very, your TV persona is very easy to dislike. Uh, and he was very easy to dislike and he played it like a champion. He'd been waiting for that role. I think his entire life, uh, you know, and his dad was not going to allow that to happen. He, his own exposure for Vince's own exposure was going to be as a TV broadcaster and a, and a promoter, not as a performer. So, uh, I think he'd been waiting for that opportunity for a long time. And he certainly made the most of it when he, uh, finally, when it finally came around the best heel we had was Vince McMahon. Let's keep it going and talk about this same show. Shawn Michaels is going to come out. Meltzer would say, the only thing I can say about him is at least he wasn't wearing those shorts. Aside from that, he looks as dated as anything on the show. Triple H came out and mentioned uh, how he lost the title the previous night, but never did the job. Michaels didn't say how proud he was of having taught his protege, the game he mastered as an active wrestler, but many did pick up on it. Anyway, after a zillion turns, they're back to being best friends. Michaels then introduced Foley as commissioner and Foley made fun of triple H's boring 20 minute promos by doing one of his own. Actually, Foley was hilarious in everything that he did on the show. And he set up a three-way between angle triple H and the rock as the main event. This is an interesting segment because 
Uh, and I, I appreciate Dave. Dave always had a hard on for Sean, never dropping belts in the nineties. So now in 2000, when triple H loses a belt without ever having to lose, he thinks, oh, he just took a page out of Sean's book. But I do like the introduction of Foley as a commissioner. Foley has gone on record as saying that was some of the most fun he had in professional wrestling was being commissioner, and he did a great job. And this is where the debut happened. Yeah, he Mick was a uh, great. He was Mick was great in every role that he was put in. Originally, as the heel to, to pair up with the Undertaker, uh, they had great success. You know, the Hell in a Cell match. 98 we just you know a month or so ago celebrated the anniversary of uh was it'll never be forgotten uh, i'm shocked that people can still remember things that lawler and i said during that match and they can quote it verbatim it's really uh, astounding to me uh but but mick has never mick never failed in any role that he was assigned and so and so you look now at today's landscape you know, they don't, the WWE doesn't have any strong personalities like Mick Foley and I'm not knocking their guys. They've got some great in-ring performers, but where they're falling short sometimes is on the charismatic side. And, uh, you know, we had, we were lucky, man. We were luckier than hell. We had some guys that had charisma. That was always something I looked for the it factor. When you hire somebody, do they have the ability to live beyond their normal, uh, persona, their normal everyday persona and add some more to it. That makes them extraordinary as a TV performer. And Mick always scored on that deal. Angle is now wearing a robe and an oversized crown, uh, sort of doing his best, uh, Harley race impression. Uh, Lawler is going to beat Dean Malenko here in a stripper match. The gimmick here is whenever someone is thrown over the top, either cat or Terry have to take off clothes. They're both there in bra and panties. So when Malenko goes sailing over the top, that means Terry has to take off her bra. She does. Stevie Richards comes out as the evil censor. Some of this stuff is, is simplistic, but, and silly, but man, it was a ratings bonanza and the crowd was ready for it. I mean, it feels so silly to say, well, we'll just tease that you might get to see a boob and guys lose their mind. It works. <laughs> yeah. what, a, what a different time this was. Yeah. At TV 14, man, T at edgy, edgy, you know, uh, we, we lived through a very edgy period there in that attitude era. And, but like you said, it worked. The bottom line was that it worked. And, uh, you know, the, uh, I can't remember the, all the data, the statistics, but we were, we were getting a good number on a station that was not a network that was not used to getting big numbers. Right. So, uh, <clears throat> we had a, we were a destination for a lot of our, our fan base moved with us for better or for worse. They, they came from USA over to TNN and, uh, you know, because they loved the product. They were, they were, it's like Monday night football going to another network, you know, Monday night football for forever was on ABC every Monday night staple. You knew where to go. You knew when the game started, you know, what network it was on. And then that, and then they moved to ESPN, another a sister network of, uh, of, uh, uh, ABC. So, I, I don't know. I, I, I'm, I was always kind of shocked how well we did on TNN because I, I got to believe that, you know, you look at the lead in and, and then the first, then the, the, the you saw the number swell. And then you look at the lead out and you saw that those people that were watching raw left, they were only on TNN to watch one show. And that's a little scary sometimes. Whereas now USA has got a full complement of good programming. 
There's a lot of other programs that you watch on USA. They've done a great job of partnering with WWE to get, you know, uh, more programming on television, featuring their stars. Miz's uh, Cannonball seems to be doing okay, and so they, there's a big partnership there, which is what we all thought might happen with Viacom. It just didn't. Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it. Blue Nile can help you find the gift that says how you feel and says it beautifully with expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com and experience the convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com to find the perfect jewelry gift for any occasion. BlueNile.com. Afford Anything talks about how to avoid common pitfalls, how to refine your mental models, and how to think about how to think. Paula, while certainly you can mess up on a million dollars a year, it is far less likely than it is on $30,000 a year. Right. I would meet wonderful people that were struggling with a budget that was super tight. It was 100%. You need to make more money. Make smarter choices and build a better life. Afford Anything, wherever you listen. Let's, uh, let's mention that they did a, a raw taping the very next day in this era, they would do one live. And then the next one, uh, we would come back and, and tape for the following week. And, uh, it, on this one in particular, we're pushing really hard. The WWF New York restaurant, which is in Times square and uh, rock is doing some classic promos with Jonathan coachman talking about poontang pie and all that stuff that probably couldn't do these days. Uh, but the, uh, the big main event. It's where we've got Triple H and Road Dog and X Pac beating Jericho and the Dudleys. And it looks like they're teasing putting Stephanie through a table, but X Pac makes the save. You know, obviously it's a different era and, and we're way more profitable than ever, but we're still going with live one week, taped the next. When was there a paradigm shift with Vince where, or does that come from the networks where we're going to have to be live every single week? No, I think that was Vince's call. Uh, and I'm sure it was predicated on ratings and, uh, the fact that, you know, the spoilers are out there and I'm a, I'm a big, uh, I'm, I'm not a big supporter of spoilers. Uh, I, I, to me, it's, if you're a real wrestling fan, do you want to divulge the end of the new movie that's debuting next week? Uh, probably not, but, uh, some people believe that that's their lot in life to, to give the spoilers because it's quote unquote, our job which is pure horseshit clicks. Well, we got to get clicks. We have a business to run. So these spoilers are going to make or break your business. Well, maybe not, but no, but you're, you know, it's stupid. You're not supporting the wrestling business wholeheartedly. If you are living and dying on the spoilers. So I think that that combination of that, the ratings on those off weeks, uh, sometimes vacillated a little bit. So then the final decision was made to go live every, every Monday night. And that was a big adjustment, you know, cause now you're, you, you know, you're going to be on the road every single week, 52 weeks a year. So that changed the complexion of a lot of things there. Much like when we did the XFL, the, a lot of the line producers and editors and guys that built packages got something else added to their plate because those really talented people, and there are a lot of them there at that point in time, uh, they knew that they're going to be double dipping, so to speak, and probably not for any extra pay their own salary. So you do this for raw and then, oh, we got to do this package for XFL. 
So it added more work to everybody. But bottom line was, is that I think the ratings and the spoilers all had a play in going live. And I also believe that, uh, going live just adds that sense of urgency for the talents and the writers and everybody, all the announcers, everybody involved, knowing that you're live, live is, uh, a great motivator. I think it produces better television when you're live. So, uh, and, and, and now right now, you know, I, I know that we're, we're live, AEW's live, uh, most Wednesday nights, but not all of them. And, you know, I don't, it won't shock me somewhere down the road that, 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 uh, we in AEW don't, don't go live every Wednesday. Wouldn't shock me whatsoever. I don't know if this is going to happen or when it's going to happen, but I think at some point in time, the realization that we do better television when we're live, live than when we don't. So that's, uh, you know, that's kind of the, the theory, at least in my view, live sales, live sporting events, live, live sales. It's more valuable to the network. The network gets more bang for their buck. Uh, the audience now can make a choice to watch which live show do you want to see, et cetera, et cetera. So, but that was a Vince call and I'm sure with the council of the network as well, cause the network's not stupid. They know that if we're live, we'll have a better show. And that was their goal to have a better show with a better show comes better ratings and with better ratings comes more money. Yes, it did. Let's, uh, let's talk about somebody else. Who's going to be money. There's a whole write up about him. Uh, in the uh, New York times on June 25th, it's about Brock Lesnar signing with the WWF Meltzer would write. It said that Lesnar will report for pro wrestling training on August 1st for Ohio Valley wrestling. Jim Ross in the article said they have no plans to rush Lesnar, but they said the hope to have him on the WWF roster within one year, the article credited Gerald Briscoe, who in the sixties, when he attended Oklahoma state university was the roommate of Jay Robinson, the current university of Minnesota wrestling coach with being the key in getting him to sign with the WWF. The story said that Lesnar turned down offers from WCW and all Japan. Actually, it was new Japan. Lesnar, according to the story was not a standout in either football or high school wrestling. He's 270 pounds with 9% body fat, according to the story and sort of resembles Dolph Lundgren after high school at Bismarck state college in North Dakota. He had a 53 and three record and won the national junior college heavyweight championship in 98 which got him the scholarship to Minnesota, where he took second in the nation behind the eventual world champion, Stephen Neal in 99, his record at Minnesota over those two years was 55 and three. How big of a get was Brock Lesnar? I mean, just the signing of him here makes the New York times. That's a big deal. Well, he, he was the NCAA champion, uh, division one, which is why we left him there. So he could win that title. Uh, and we were, everybody involved was confident that he'd be the guy that was good for the program. Good for Jay Robinson. And, and, uh, you know, Jay protected our in, interest in Brock without question. Thanks to Gerald Briscoe's relationship with him. Uh, so, and I always signed off on Gerald's travel. He could go watch Brock wrestle whenever he wanted. And I, I encouraged that he needs to see you there. He needs to know that we care all the time, 24 seven. We care about you, Brock. We want to, we need you on our team. We want you on our team. But it was, I don't know that Conrad, that we would have ever dreamed that Lesnar would have become this multi-sport star, uh, including USC, you know, he became the USC champion, uh, in, in the heavyweight division and the big money division. Uh, and, and so I don't know if we could forecast his end of run greatness 
that he has earned that he has. Uh, but we knew it was big because we knew it was big because of what he looked like, his attitude, his athleticism, his track record. He was a champion. He's a guy that beat all of his competition in his division in, on in junior college and in, in major college. So it was a huge gift for us. You know, you got, you got all his measurements, his measurables were off the chart. He was one of the fastest guys. Brock Lesnar was one of the fastest guys that I think we ever signed running wise. I'm telling you, now, I'm not talking about a marathon, but sprints, uh, that he had a great first step. He was big and strong. I met his dad during this recruiting process. Who's a mirror image. You could tell Brock was not adopted. His dad's a big, strong, raw bone dude. Dairy farmer there from uh, South Dakota or North Dakota, one of the Dakotas, I think South Dakota. And, uh, but anyway, he, he was, uh, it was big. It was really big. And it kind of, for me in my vision for talent relations, I recruited a lot of guys that came from major sports backgrounds because they brought a lot of positive things with them, uh, from those, those, that structured environment of being on a team. Uh, residing in a locker room, of uh, of uh, being a, a part of training, heavy training, conditioning, all those things bode well for any pro wrestler. So uh, I, I I thought that you know it would open the door for us to recruit other athletes from that same uh, you know that same neighborhood, shall we say? And it, it, it did because we did recruit several of them, and and quite frankly, uh, one of the reasons. We recruited and signed Shelton Benjamin was cause a, he too was an amazing athlete. Here's a guy that wants a national championship in wrestling and in sprints and track. How the hell does that happen? Right. So we, we opened the door for a lot of those guys and, uh, and not to say that Kurt angle didn't open the door as well. He did obviously he's Olympic gold medalist, but there were, we would probably have the chance to recruit fewer gold medalists than we were simply great athletes who had success in amateur wrestling in this case. So, uh, so lesson really opened the door for our, and our eyes and the company's eyes that when you, it's like, to me, it was like buying a, and I say this in, in, uh, all due respect, Conrad, it's like, if you and I were going to get in thoroughbred horse racing, we're going to, before we invest our money in this horse we're buying, uh, to race, we're going to make sure that we know this horse's pedigree. The, the pedigrees accomplishments, uh, all we can, all the DNA we can find out about this horse, uh, is going to be, is going to be contributed to our investment. And I think that's, uh, what we found out with Brock. We had all these measurables, whether it be his bench press or his, his, uh, his win loss record. I mean, my God his win loss record at, in Juco and at, uh, at Minnesota was stellar. I mean, I think he had like three losses or something. And in, and in Minnesota, that's in the big 10 and they're a hell of a wrestling conference. You know, it's a big time deal. Cause you got Iowa there and, and who was always a perennial national power. Uh, of course now you got Penn state, which uh, the Kel Sanderson, the coach. So it's a, it was a great conference for amateur wrestling and he dominated it. So I'm a, I, I think it was a big signing for a lot of ways other than the fact that, well, we got this, you know, I didn't hire him to to go to OVW and become the ring crew foreman and drive the ring truck, which is what he did. 
uh, that was not the end game. So how that worked. I think that's Vince calling to see if you'll come call raw on Monday. Yeah, I'm I'm available. <laughs> uh, let's talk about, uh, another guy who's looking to come in Raven messer would write Raven has not signed a contract with WWF, but the sides have come to a verbal understanding. And it's basically a question of when he gets his ECW release that he'll be coming to the WWF. There are no major guarantees. So he's going to have to prove himself due to his baggage and past, as opposed to people who were brought in with basically a guaranteed push. Talk to us a little bit about, uh, Raven, you know, he had a stop over here before, uh, played a manager character, Johnny Polo. He goes back to ECW. Uh, uh, well, I guess he starts in ECW and, and really starts this Raven character. Uh, but before coming to you guys, he had a stop over in WCW as Scotty Flamingo. So it's WCW, then the WWF, then ECW, then WCW now back to ECW. And now he's thinking about coming back to the WWF, but he had garnered a little bit of a reputation for being difficult to deal with at different times in both ECW and WCW. But I think once upon a time, the first stop over in the WWF, he was maybe drinking buddies with, with Shane McMahon and maybe Vince had a bad taste in his mouth. What can you tell us about Raven trying to come back here in 2000? Well, he, we, the, the theory was, even though Scotty had a, uh, kind of a checkered past, uh, at times, some well-founded, some probably not so much. Uh, he was perceived as being a problematic at times, but he kind of reinvented himself there in ECW that last run and got over, uh, always Scotty's always a smart guy. And sometimes I think he's been, he was too smart for his own good. It was not a popular hire. Uh, but you know, and I remember the, the, the said one time who hired Raven or whatever, whatever we called it, I mean, you know, who hired him on me. But you knew I was hiring him. So, uh, it was a gamble, you know, Scotty talented guy, smart as hell, great IQ, but you know, sometimes his own, uh, uh, personal issues, uh, gotten his way and not just, not just talking about drugs and or alcohol and he'd out, he would, he would, he would uh, think about things that he overthought stuff and, but that's not a Scotty. Uh, Levy story. It's a Raven story. It's a story of a lot of guys, right? When things aren't quite going their way, they go to the lowest common denominator and predict gloom and doom on themselves. And that's kind of the way of a, of a, of an entertainer. You know, I had that hit back in, you know, 10 years ago, I'm still singing at the County fairs, but I got to have another hit. What's going on? How come I don't have any music? So it was not a popular hire. Uh, but I thought it was worth the risk and if he could replicate the success that he had in ECW, then, uh, then, then we get, we get a, a good guy. I didn't think he was ever going to be a headline at WrestleMania, but it's like, I use this baseball analogy. He's a good seven or eight hole hitter, but he's on the team and he can play. So, but it wasn't a great, uh, it wasn't a great, uh, popular, it wasn't a popular hire whatsoever. Uh, because he had burned a lot of bridges and offended a lot of people. And I, I, I can only deal with what I'm dealing with today. And if you think a guy has bettered himself, improved himself and is, des- is deserving of another chance, that's what you do. You take a flyer on it. You see if it's going to work. 
And if it works great, if it didn't work, well, you didn't break the bank sign on the guy. And uh, you can always, you know, with 90 day notice, you can say adios. So that was kind of the deal there. I, I just, I was bottom line, Conrad. I just hoped he could replicate what he was doing in ECW as far as his popularity and ability to get over. He cut great promos. Uh, so, but again, Scotty could be his own worst enemy at times. And, and that's unfortunate. I saw him in Atlanta when we played Atlanta, uh, he played Atlanta here last year. Yeah. And, uh, you know, enjoyed visiting with him. He's seemed to be grounded and level headed and still alert, but, uh, his intelligence always impressed me. It's just sometimes, even if you're smart and you get a high IQ, you can be, uh, you can make bad decisions. And so that's kind of where I left it with him. But I, I didn't, I didn't have any animosity toward what his past was. I couldn't change the past. We folks, we cannot change history. We can learn from it. We can't predict the future because it hasn't happened yet. You can only deal in today. And on that day, based on my evaluation, I thought he was worth taking a chance on. Well, I'm glad that he did, you know, um, Raven is one of the more, uh, cult icon favorites of the nineties. I've got several of my wrestling buddies and that raving character is, is one of their all time favorites. Um, let's talk about business for a minute. Uh, there's something in here that really took my, I don't talk to me about surprise, I guess the SmackDown taping on June 20th in Memphis had a sellout 16,000 fans, 396 grand. And there's a Madison square garden sellout the 11th straight one. There's 19,588 folks. The gate is over half a million, $511,857, not including the pay-per-view in Boston. The arena merchandise for the week was $297,631. It's just remarkable. The cash is just pouring in. I mean, that MSG gate is like $2,000 shy for the largest non-pay-per-view gate ever for wrestling. The business has never been hotter. Does it feel like you guys just can't play a bad song at this point? It feels like whatever, wherever you go, it's a sellout. I mean, these guys have become rock stars here. Have they not? Yeah. We were the, uh, new England Patriots, man. We were winning super bowls. We were winning every week. Uh, as far as money was concerned, uh, that, that, uh, garden number, those, all those, uh, what we have, uh, that's our 11th consecutive sellout in the garden. Right. And then last year, I think it was last year, uh, during the, and during the holiday period, it was, that was almost a lock. You're going to sell out the garden on, on the Christmas shows. And, and they didn't, it tells you that it's a simple formula. I learned this from cowboy bill Watts. I heard it from Eddie Graham. I heard it from dusty Rhodes. I heard it from Jimmy Crockett. If you don't, if you have what the fans want to see come rainstorms or snow or ice or whatever, our fan base and our world are the most loyal people ever. They're going to come see what you're offering. If you have what they want to see, luckily for us at that point in time, we had a deep roster of main event level guys that the audience would pay to come see. And that apparently isn't the case now based on my, uh, dialogue here about the garden. You, you can't sell out the garden on the holiday shows. That should be a great indication that booking is off. 
the wrong people are carrying the ball. You got to reshuffle your deck sometimes. And we reshuffled our deck all the time, but, but the same, but you still have the same 52 cards. It's how you, how you put them in a hand that makes it work. So, uh, I'm always, I'm really proud of what we did there at the garden. Cause it made Vince especially proud because he would stand in the same spot behind that curtain on the short entrance and same place as dad stood and listen to the crowd and the great promoters, which Vince is one of could tell you a lot about the creative by listening to the audience, listening to the ovation of an uh, entrance, listening to the ovation on a finish, listening to the ovation on a false finish, listening, listening is all, it's very key. So I've always been proud of that, that, that uh, situation. Uh, but anyway, the garden was special. We treated it special. I tried to put great cards in there as best I could load them up, give plenty, people plenty to see and, and enjoy. So, uh, it's fun to read about this stuff again, all these years later, because you know, I didn't, I don't carry around with me. Oh yeah. One time we sold out the garden 14 shows in a row or whatever. You know, it, I, I slept too much since then. You know, I, I, I can't remember all that stuff. So anyway, it was a cool thing. And, and, but if you, the bottom line for this goddamn too long oratory is if you have what the audience wants to see, they will be there. Conversely, they're, they're, they're very, they're, they know what they want. If you don't have what they want to see, if the issues aren't personal and not intense and not physical, then they ain't showing up. And so that's the deal. It's one thing to have a Meltzer rated three or four or five star match because the mechanics are good. It's another element altogether different where those elements motivated with, uh, personal issues. Do the titles mean something? So, uh, that's, there's a lot of little variables there that go into that uh, formula, but, uh, you got to have what the audience wants to see. Are they showing up? Let's talk about Johnny Ace. He makes the uh, newsletter here on July 10th. It says Johnny Ace informed the office talking about all Japan that he wasn't coming and is expected to take a backstage backstage job with WCW. Ace had apparently been interested elsewhere. So he had a tryout, uh, more than one year ago with the WWF, but the WWF wasn't interested in him. It is pretty remarkable to think that, you know, perhaps sometime in 99, Ace tried to make the jump to the WWF and you guys passed WCW takes him. You fast forward less than a year, WCW's out of business and you guys bring Ace over and he eventually winds up in your old chair. This is, uh. Quite the story, is it not? Yeah, yeah. You guys, meaning Jr. brought him in. You're right. Vincent, Vincent had very little recollection of who he was. Uh, his only link to Johnny Ace at that time was he was uh, Road Warrior Animal's brother. That's it. Uh, I always found you know John to be a professional and polite, uh, decent head on his shoulder. I thought through his uh, matches and his interacting with the giant Baba. And Mrs. Baba, <clears throat> uh, that, uh, uh, he probably picked up a lot of cool things match wise. So he was in a, he was going to become an agent. That's it. And so I thought when, uh, WCW went belly up that he would be a good addition to our, to our agent roster. And the fact that we we're going to have to hire a bunch of those WCW guys, which is cool for me, but 
you know, I hadn't worked with those guys in a while because I've been in WWE since 93 at that point in time. I thought John could help communicate with those guys better. He knew their skill sets, strengths, weaknesses, et cetera, et cetera. So yeah, it was, uh, I brought him in and look, he had a great appearance. Vince loved appearance. Vince loves looks. If you hadn't noticed that. And you know, John tall, good looking guy, blonde hair, you know, you know, all that good stuff. And, uh, and of course you look at me and here I am, you know, uh, not, I'm not tall, not good looking. Uh, but we've built a pretty fucking good roster without with the ugly talent relations head. Uh, so yeah, it was, a it was a interesting hiring. I didn't, I don't know that he was ever, I, I well, obviously he, he was, he was, uh, aiming for my job and, uh, and Vince, you know, for the sake of change, the sake of change, uh, made a change abruptly in one day, you know, it wasn't even like, Hey, I'm thinking about doing this and uh, whatever. It was just like, Hey, I'm going to make a change in talent relations. I'm going to make Laurinaitis head of talent relations. Uh, I'm going to give you a new title, a new office, blah, 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 which also, which really means I'm basically moving your office closer to the exit. It's kind of what it would happen. So, uh, whatever, you know, Johnny was not like me as far as managing. He may have been a better manager than me. Hell, I don't know. It's egocentric for me to say yay or nay, but I was more abrupt, more succinct, a little gruff. I could be a cranky old bastard, no doubt, but, uh, all that worked. If, if my philosophy had not worked, Conrad, I would have changed it. It's like a coach getting the most out of his players. If they need an ass chewing and that's what it takes to motivate them, then that's what you do. If they need an attaboy and a hug and a cookie, then that's what you do. So, uh, but John was more docile, more passive than was I. And I think Vince saw that he could probably control John easier than he could control me. And th that might've been my fault. Maybe I'd have that job a lot longer, but to be honest with you, I had a great run at it. The, the roster was intact. The foundation was laid. Look at what, what look at the roster that Lauren Addis inherited. It was astounding. And that was a collective effort between myself and our department, the Jerry Briscoe's of the world that busted their ass to go find these guys from D one to NAIA, whatever. Uh, so it, that's how that worked. I, I didn't, I didn't see it coming. I didn't know it was that, uh, serious an issue, right? But, uh, you know, it, that's, that's the way the ball bounced. And so uh, you can, you know, I got my ass knocked to my knees. I, I felt I was in love with this roster. I, I love my guys. Uh, and that's, it's funny now how so many of them still contact me about it. Hey, what do you think about this? What do you think about, they still trust me in my judgment to this very day. So, you know, it just was one of those things where it was part of the journey I was, I've been on in my lifetime. So you get your ass knocked down, you know, you only got one choice. You can lay there and grovel and get in the fetal position and whimper and moan or get your fucking fat ass up and get back to work and do what you love <laughs> to do. Quite frankly, if Vince had said, I, I think he made me uh, executive vice president of business strategies or something like that. Conrad to this very day, I don't even know what the fuck that means. Right. I had a huge office. Uh, and I think triple H is in that office now. It's had quite the history that <laughs> folks passing through that, that big office there just down the two doors down from Vince's office. So in any event, that's, that's how that worked. I wasn't aware it was going to happen, but at the end of the day, it all happened for the best. Two more things. Then we'll get into the pay-per-view, um, 
Meltzer writes, caught the discovery channel special called wrestling school based on Rick Bassman's UPW ultimate pro wrestling school in Southern California, which will air on July 11th. The show follows the training and indie matches of several wrestlers building to a visit of both a practice and a house show by Bruce Pritchard of the WWF, along with following two of the wrestlers doing a dark match and a SmackDown taping in San Jose. The highlight of the show is John Cena. S E N a who has the look of a young sting, a physique of a competitive bodybuilder and a tremendous interview delivery of his character, the prototype, which is a little too corny eighties as a character, but his ability to do an interview in character would probably translate well into any character until you see him wrestle in the ring. He looks, can't miss until you see him wrestle. And then you realize he needs a lot of work, but if he gets that down, he has a shot at being a genuine star. Uh, kind of an understatement, huh? Yeah, a little, <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it's pretty spectacular to think that, that this was even captured and, you know, Bassman, I don't think really is talked about enough. And I know that, you know, some people may dismiss it, but you look back and I mean, Samoa Joe's in that same class in school with John Cena and a generation before there's a couple of guys who would go on to be the ultimate warrior and sting. I mean, however, however big or small you want to make it Rick Bassman has his spot in wrestling history, just from all the folks that, and the talent that he's identified and helped get going. Yeah, he does. Rick did a good job. Uh, being lo- being located Conrad in Southern California, uh, you got the best of both worlds because you got a lot of guys that are out there either to, you know, body build, to act, be stunt men. In other words, to get into Hollywood, so to speak. Uh, and I know, uh, Bruce, Bruce went out there a lot. Uh, Bruce enjoyed going uh, to work, uh, with Bassman. He enjoyed the, uh, opportunities that Bassman provided recreationally, good food, you know, the camaraderie in that regard. And, uh, then I got involved more involved in Cena's, uh, recruitment and, uh, started going after myself just to make sure I could, I was, I was seeing what I was hearing about the kid and I wanted to meet him. I, I've always believed that was a key issue. There's sit down and have a talk. And I discovered that John Cena was a pro wrestling historian, especially regarding the WWF because John grew up in, in uh, Massachusetts. Uh, and ironically, uh, one of his football coaches there became the, one of the strength coaches at OU here at Oklahoma university. Uh, Scott Kolak and Scott gave John a stellar recommendation as far as teamwork, captain of the team, first one in last one out. I love the work ethic. And so when guys say, well, he's really green. What the fuck color would he be? (laughs) Well, he needs work. No shit. You're so observant. Thank you for the direction. So really, uh, Work ethic, character, integrity. Those are things that we should not discount because a guy can, uh, can do a, a hurricane Rana or do another flip over the top rope where his other, his catchers just have to be standing there. Friend and foe are happy to catch him, which is one of the most illogical situations when you stop and think about it, that you can, you can see. So I, I just, I was impressed with the kid. And to the level that I took a red eye back that one trip, I told this story, I'll tell it much quicker. I took a red eye back. I go from, uh, LaGuardia to the office 
and, uh, going to Vince's office that morning, he just got there and I told him that I saw a kid that and I talked to him. I spent a day with him that I think will be a main event at WrestleMania in five years. And he, he looked at me with this insane look that he could do saying, you didn't go home and take a shower. <laughs> it's, you know, like, are you drunk? <laughs> are you crazy? Are you high? So, uh, anyway, it, it worked out and it worked out. I, I trusted my judgment on John's character and his integrity and his work ethic. I knew this kid would do anything w- within his powers, mentally and physically to be a star. He's willing to pay the price and to do the work. And nobody can ever say you can knock John's work in the ring. You may not have been a fan of this or that, but you, nobody with any common sense, unless you're just really stupid can ever debate John Cena's work ethic. He does more make a wishes than anybody in the company's history by far, maybe more than anybody in make a wish history. He's done all kinds of things that didn't go, that went unpublicized. And now look at him. He set his sights now on becoming a successful player in Hollywood. And guess what? He's succeeding. One of the things that's a highlight of the show that Meltzer put over in a big way is quote, the piece showed him stocking up on groceries for a week with 40 pounds of meat, 35 pounds of chicken, seven dozen eggs, and a few gallons of milk and nothing else making one ask the obvious question of how can he stay so cut up and muscular eating that volume of food? Uh, somebody who was uh, chowing down in a big way, our old pal, Vic Grimes, he makes the newsletter. Meltzer says his WWF contract was not renewed. Quote, the feeling seems to be that he didn't improve on his in-ring work and conditioning over the year he was under contract. He's still technically with ECW, but they haven't used him because he moved to Northern California and with money being tight, they're just not going to fly him in. We should mention him. Or the reason I bring him up is he was in the WWF for a cup of coffee the year prior, and he debuted wearing all white using the name key with the understanding that he is a drug dealer. Key is like short for a kilo of cocaine, yeah. a drug dealer gimmick in 1999 yes. with our pimps and our porn stars. It's an interesting time in the world wrestling federation. Yeah. I, I'm not a big uh, fan of a few things in wrestling. I, I'm not a big fan of using religion in any shape, form or fashion in, in wrestling. I, I'm not a big fan of using politics, uh, in pro wrestling. Don't think it belongs there. And this uh, being a, uh, a drug, a, a pusher, a, a, a drug guy didn't see where that helped anybody. Uh, but it was again, the one, the negative about the attitude error was that we kept trying to out sensationalize the last gimmick and, you know, Godfather being a, you know, pimping ain't easy. He was more of a lovable, entertaining guy. I think that was why he stayed babyface as a, as a godfather more often than not. He was a lovable guy. He was, but how do you make a, a drug dealer, a lovable person? You don't. So, uh, I, I, Vic, Vic had a lot of talent. He had great timing. He took massive bumps for a guy, his size, but in that year that we had him under contract, you expect guys to change their body, get in better condition. And people say, well, what's all this issue about, the, you know, you don't work in six, seven minute matches or whatever. If you're out of condition and you get fatigued, you get sloppy. And when you get sloppy, you hurt people. 
And that ain't the goal. Your goal is to protect your opponent. And sometimes that was a concern. A lot of guys were reticent about working with Vic, but he was a, a really bump taking athletic big man. He reminded me a little bit at times on his bumping now, uh, of Mick Foley. He didn't, he wasn't afraid of any chance. He took risk and, and he did things that big guys, heavyweight guys like him normally did not do, but the commitment, uh, to get better, get in better shape, to change your body a, a little bit to more favorable television. Look, he didn't, he didn't exhibit that. So, you know, that was kind of the deal. And, uh, and so the decision was made that, you know, we didn't have anything for him. So, you know, I had to let him go. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here. I want to talk about the pay-per-view, but first I guess we should add a little context. Uh, Meltzer would write the fully loaded pay-per-view will be headlined, headlined easy for me to say by rock versus Benoit for the WWF title, triple H versus Jericho and angle versus undertaker. So they're giving Benoit Jericho and angle each their own highest profile matches on this show. They're putting Benoit with Shane as his manager. I think it's real important. The buy rate stays at a competitive level or else fingers will be pointed at people for not being of the main event caliber. Rock versus Benoit and Triple H versus Jericho should be great matches if they're shorter TV bouts that have already taken place or any indication. I have no idea how Angle is going to be able to get a match out of Undertaker. Whether you want to chalk this up to being perceptive, paranoid, or simply that plans change so quickly in wrestling that looking back a few weeks, things not make sense. There is an awareness that Benoit and Jericho are coming off pay per views where they were eliminated in the first round and coming off no major wins each. And are now expected to draw a pay-per-view from a main event position. This is an interesting take by Meltzer and, and pretty observant. Do you agree with the assessment? That's going to be tough for Benoit and Jericho to be considered draws after, well, they haven't exactly been positioned strong recently. Well, I think that the fact that both of them were under six feet tall was the, one of the, as stupid as it sounds. And it was stupid because, you know, my vision for Benoit and Jericho was entirely different than a lot of guys. You know, I, 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 I just thought talent always rises to the top and they both wrestle bigger than they were. And, you know, if I had a territory, certainly to say, if you, if you had a territory, would you hire Jericho and Benoit? God dang, hell yeah, I would. They could both work babyface or heel. They could have good matches with anybody. They were believable. They were snug. Everything that I loved about pro wrestling, they were, but they weren't six feet tall. And so their, their, their height, uh, always played against them. So you got to go above and beyond to be accepted by, uh, the, some of the, some in the WWE community at that time. Uh, and so, and they, but the good news is like John Cena wanted to be a star, uh, these guys wanted to be a star at the highest level. And their work ethic and their, their bell to bell performance got them there. So, uh, yeah, it was a tough book. They weren't, they weren't hot going into the pay-per-view, obviously, just like you pointed out, they weren't hot, but I, I just think that it was a, a thing where, you know, maybe that was a proving point just for some people. Let's see how they do. Let's see how rock likes working with Benoit. Let's see how, you know, Hunter likes working with Jericho or whatever it may be. And, uh. But quite honestly, uh, you know, not knocking triple H cause he's a hell of a hand. He's a hall of fame guy. He was not a better worker than Jericho at that time. 
it's just that he was six, three or four. And that's, that's something I, I, uh, you couldn't, you couldn't, couldn't fix that one. It's just gotta be proven out that it didn't matter. And at the end of the day, it did not matter. Uh, Meltzer would be very complimentary of the July 3rd show in Orlando. He says that Foley needs whoever put Foley in this spot needs a major raise because he deserves to be working in a comedy sitcom. He hits a home run in every segment. Edge and Christian are pretty hilarious on, on this show too. Meltzer would even call it the funniest television, the funniest show on TV. Um, this is a little bit of influence from your old pal, Brian, is it not? I mean, he had a great sense for comedy on raw Brian Goodworts. Yeah. Brilliant kid, brilliant writer still is. He started doing a lot of stuff with rock, pretty much everything with rock that came out of rock's mouth was suggested or refined or contributed by Brian Goodworts. So Brian did a, did a great job. He was a brilliant kid and, and, uh, and he's uh, still working with rock. So rock knows talent when he sees it. And Brian was certainly a big talented guy. Uh, Foley, as I said earlier, we'd never put him in a role that he didn't succeed. Never. Right. He, that's, that's what he did. He was just really, really good at whatever he, he took ownership. He was willing to take chances. He was willing to pull the veneer off his own persona of being this hated psychological, psychotic mankind. Now he's, he's making me laugh. That's great range. That's great range. when you can do that. Normally when you got a guy that you try to do that with, they, they have one skill set. That's much more dominant, uh, than another. And, uh, but Mick, he was equally as good as a villain, baby face, character, baby face, commissioner, whatever it may be. So broadcaster, I love broadcaster with Mick. He was a lot of fun. He just couldn't stand the getting yelled at in his headset. So, uh, but who likes that shit? Right. That's no way to produce talent. Right. I don't give a fuck what anybody says. You can't down denigrate people on live television and expect their head to stay clear and productive and creative. It's impossible. So, uh, and then all of a sudden the announcers become gun shy. They don't want to take any chances. And that was my problem. I took a lot of chances on commentary and I got my ass chewed out a lot, but I think at the end of the day, it was all for the betterment of the product, but, uh, I, I, uh, I thought Mick would did a great job and Brian Gewertz was a, a key, uh, a piece of that whole situation, writing that funny stuff, entertainment stuff. And, uh, Brian Gewertz is a, a really an unsung hero, uh, in the attitude era. You know, I didn't always agree with this concepts and we had our philosophical disagreements. Uh, but so what, so what, what does it matter? that we have a difference of opinion. Now you get the social media today, you know, you can say something and give your opinion or your take. So I've had people say, what's your best match you ever called? I, I said, I don't know. I've called a lot of them. I thought were great matches, you know, my work was great or not. It's irrelevant. Uh, but you know, I'll mention a match. Oh, how about, uh, rock and Hogan at WrestleMania 18? Oh no, the, I, I can't say how you can say that over, uh, Austin and Bret Hart at WrestleMania 13. Well, I'm down if I do and down if I don't. So what I'm saying is if, when you dis when somebody gives an opinion, don't be a jerk off and beat their ass up because they express an opinion that, that someone you or someone else solicited. 
So, uh, but I had, I had issues with Brian at times because I thought sometimes our comedy was ill, ill placed, the wrong place, wrong time. But when he got it right, which he did more, much, much more often than not, it was generally was a hit. He had a very, very creative mind and, and a big part of the success of the attitude era without question. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and let's talk about, um, the main event of that show, because it's a rather interesting main event. We're going to cover a couple of raw main events as we get towards, uh, the big showdown here, the main event of this raw would see uh, Guerrero and China and rock over edge Christian and Benoit Benoit and rock never lock up and China was kept out until the very end. And then China pins Christian with a power bomb. Uh, Shane comes out and attacks rock. And then uh, rock chases Shane to the back and Benoit puts China in the crossface again. After the show goes off the air, rock gives Benoit a people's elbow. We're trying to build these folks up, but along the way, it does feel like we're sacrificing Christian at China pinning him with a power bomb. Well, China pinning anybody that had testicles was a compromise, right? Made no sense. And I, again, I'll be taking the task on this. Oh, you never liked China. I love Joni. I spent more time with Joni trying to help her through her issues, uh, uh, when on her exit, when it was, she discovered Hunter was seeing Stephanie. I, she was, I, I got her. Vince didn't want anybody else dealing with Joni, but me. And so that's what I did. I did my job. Imagine that concept. Uh, but I never, ever, uh, was comfortable with intergender matches. And I know, well, JR, you're old school, you know, uh, you're, you're, you're the time has passed you by, you know, Tessa Blanchard did it in, in, uh, in impact. Well, you know. Quite frankly, Impact's not a mainline uh, broadcast. Uh, they do they they work their ass off, but they they don't have the exposure or the the identity name identity that I'm sure that they would like. But they're not going to get any better by having intergender matches. To me, it's just a it's too much of a compromise. It's too far of a stretch from my, from my personal taste. So should they not be held at all? I would never book an intergender match. I certainly called plenty of them because that was my job. But if I had a, the old quote, quote unquote pencil today, there's no effing way that I'm going to book any intergender matches because I don't think they're logical. So, and even Joni's stature and her strength and her power, and how much she could bench press, you know, a lot of the viewers don't know a lot of that stuff. And yes, we can tell them over and over and over, but still she's a woman. And what's that woman doing there fighting that guy? And why is the guy not hitting them in the face more? Uh, all these, well, they, they're going to wrestle with men and they got to be treated like men to blah, blah, blah. There's so many unanswered questions, so many clouds over the concept. It, to me, it just never jived. So, uh, not a big thing. And of course, Christian would then evolve, uh, through, uh, and, and become a major star, a hall of fame level guy. Jay Russell was a big time player, but he wasn't then he was getting there, but he wasn't then, but he showed that he had team. He had the team comes first. He, he may have compromised his own beliefs, Conrad and, and putting Joni over with a power bomb. So, uh, I don't know. I, I just, you know, edge and Christian were, were not big, uh, 
Mick, Edge, and Christian were, the, were, were three of the guys I could name, boom, 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 that were not over highly regarded. I can promise you that if I told Vince uh, uh, that I've signed uh, Adam Copeland and Jay Resso, he'd say, who? Right. I don't know who those guys are. But I, w- I was on a roll hiring talent. I got lucky. You know, that's sometimes better to be lucky than good. And so I wasn't questioned about it. And then when you got, when we got him in the ring with Dory jr. And Tom Pritchard, we saw that we had something, we had something and same thing with Mick, you know, the story about Mick, you know, Vince didn't want me to hire him, but he, he let me hire him so I could see how my, how it would be like to get your heart broken on a talent. You totally, totally believed in and were committed to that. Let you down. Well, I can say this right now, Mick Foley for sure. And certainly, uh, edge and Christian never let me down one time and never let the WWE down one time. And, and to the sense that edge leaves for years, seemingly, uh, through and gets healed up and comes back and has the marquee match at this year's WrestleMania. So, uh, those are good hires. That's what you're looking for. You're looking for that guy that can play several years at a high level, right? Just go through, go through the motions. I skipped over it. I guess I should circle back the prior week on raw rock is supposed to face Shane in the main event. It goes to a DQ of course, when Benoit interferes and he gets rock in the cross face after a few chair shots and he's got him there for like two minutes while Shane is keeping all the refs at bay. Foley finally comes out and gets Benoit off of the rock and then rock gets up and Meltzer would say sold way too little considering the circumstances, but either way, Shane now being paired with Benoit. Meltzer thinks it's great for Benoit. What do you think? Well, Chris's only uh, negative thing on Chris's side was his ability to do a sports entertainment promo, right? There's a difference in doing a sports entertainment promo and doing a pro wrestling promo. And, uh, uh for my money, uh, Chris Benoit doing a pro wrestling promo and talking about real issues and the reality of, uh, the matches and hit what he's going to do and what the other guy does. We're always fine. Absolutely fine. But to be a sports entertainer and do a promo with tongue in cheek sometimes and eyes, up, I, you know, eyebrows up sometimes was not Chris's forte. He did not have the sizzle for the sports entertainment promo. He had all, everything he'd want in a pro wrestling promo. Uh, but Shane, uh, was charismatic still is. Uh, had a, a galvanizing personality, polarizing, probably better said. So what a bad move at all. I thought it was a, it was a good move. I think it, I thought it added a little bit of a garnish to Benoit's stake. And, and to me, that was a good opportunity and a smart positioning. Let's, uh, let's talk about some news and notes here. Bob Holly's going to have surgery this past week for the broken arm. He suffered when angle moonsaulted on him and his knee landed right on Holly's forearm. Holly needed both plates and screws inserted into the arm and is expected to be out for three months. Um, Holly's always had a reputation for being one of the toughest guys. This is another example. Yeah. Bobby was, uh, one of the more underrated workers we ever had in that roster. Bob Holly could work with anybody in a main event level. Uh, you know, Bob may have been missing a kind of that Ben watching. He may have been missing a little bit of the entertainment promo, but as far as bell to bell, uh, he was outstanding. He was always on time. He was always in shape. He always kept trying to make his body better. 
you know, Bob's a guy that, uh, I can't remember who told me this story. One of his roommates on the road that he'd get up at three o'clock. He, he had to eat every few hours. So he'd wake up at like three in the morning to eat chicken breast that he had, you know, he had, uh, brought into the room probably from catering at the, at the TV or something, or maybe uh, on a, on a live event day, just going by and getting some chicken breast someplace and, and, uh, having them in his room. But at three o'clock in the morning, he'd wake up to eat, eat his chicken breast and go back to bed and go back to sleep. Then, you know, four or five hours later, he'd eat again. He did it all day. He, he ate and ate uh, a lot, all protein. But I always loved Bob's work. You know, if Bobby had the, the Bob Holly's success to me on a higher level probably would have been with a more charismatic tag team partner and, uh, putting that combination together because Bob's work was so believable and real and solid that, uh, he could, he could work, uh, in that role with anybody that had a little bit more charisma, a little bit more sizzle than Bobby had, but I always liked working with Bob. You know, he was a hard nosed son of a bitch. He, he, he didn't waste any motions about telling you how he felt or questions that he had or whatever the case may be. He'd get frustrated as hell because he knew he was good. And many of us knew he was good. He just wasn't getting that break from creative. Some people in creative didn't think he had charisma. And so when you find a guy that's so mechanically sound, but he doesn't have charisma, it's your job in creative to figure out a casting, i.e. a booking for that talent. So you can maximize what he does. Well, Paul Heyman used to do that really, really well at ECW where he would, and every booker I ever worked for you, 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 you optimize and you magnify the good things. The talent can, can do, and you eliminate as much as you can, the things that they don't do well. So you don't expose them in a negative light. So Bob's only negative light Conrad was the fact that he wasn't chat. He's an entertaining guy to be talked to, but he it didn't translate on the camera. He was always in, he had one gear. He had one level and that was intensity. And, uh, for me, you know, how I feel about that. It's hard to knock somebody that's got great intensity, but he became a little bit in the eyes of many there one dimensional. And that was really unfair to him. Let's, uh, let's run through some other uh, little notes here. One of which I wanted to bring to your attention because we just talked about China and Tori suffers a, a shoulder separation the night before King of the ring at Madison square garden. She's going to need surgery. Meltzer would say it was not the same injury, although it was the same shoulder that she had first injured back in Japan. And this injury is effectively going to nix the program that was planned where X-Pac would team with Tori and Eddie would team with China, which would have been the first major program China would have worked against another woman. Um, gotta be disappointing. I know that, uh, Tori had, uh, quite the, the wrestling pedigree before she got to the company had a great look. And uh, I think you were high on her work as well. Weren't you? Oh yeah. Yeah. She, her training, uh, in, the that she received and the success she earned in Japan was really impressive. Uh, she did have a great look, uh, a lot of sex appeal. Very, very athletic, but she had that one, uh, Achilles heel, if you want to use that term, and that was her shoulder injury. So, uh, it, it was, it was really, it was in bad shape. And, you know, I, I think surely now the same medical practices were in place now, then rather than there, that are now where you do the thorough physical check, everything that you athletically need to check, 
uh, she might not have been hired because that's how bad the shoulder was that we found out in hindsight. Uh, so I knew she had shoulder issues, but I thought they had healed and everything. She was good to go, but it was always very vulnerable that that one shoulder. And, uh, it was a bad break for her because she had worked really hard, you know, uh, in a, in a variety of other roles. Uh, I remember she lived on a, she and her boyfriend lived on a boat that they had docked in, uh, Stanford. And so that's where she, she lived and she was close to the studio where she could do things really proved to be a pretty good move because they could use her on things that heretofore they might not have used her because she was, I think she was being flown. She lived in Portland or something like that, Oregon. I believe she lived in Portland, Oregon, but yeah, she was, she was a, she, we had high hopes for her look athletics, move set skill level, all good. All good, but it was a sad night that she got hurt and, you know, we, she didn't miss any checks. We paid her, uh, and we obviously took care of the surgery and all the fiscal training, fiscal rehabilitation and everything, but it was, it was a bad break for her cause she deserved better and she had paid her dues and, uh, was a, a very, very, uh, nice woman. No doubt about it. Dean Malenko has been working through, uh, his shoulder injury. Big show is going to be back on TV very soon, but probably not back on the road. I think this is probably when you guys were struggling with either injuries or weight with him. But the thing I wanted to bring up to you specifically, uh, was this note. WWF has had talks with Eric angle, the older brother of Kurt, who hasn't been signed to a developmental deal. WWF is also talking with at least three wrestlers who failed to make the team in the recent Olympic trials but none have signed at press time. Was Kurt pushing to have his brother signed? Why did never, why did something not work out with Eric angle? Uh, yeah, Kurt was certainly for his brother getting work, uh, take care of his family, et cetera, et cetera. Normal, normal needs and wants. Uh, he just didn't, he didn't have Kurt's charisma or his athleticism. And if you're going to be that, that's here, I'll give you an example, the Funk brothers, Dory and Terry, right? One Dory was a much better, uh, fundamentalist traditionalist. Terry was much better at the extemporaneous brawling, uh, you know, the sizzle, uh, and, and, and what, but what I'm trying to say is that both were major stars in different ways. Dor Terry did not try to be Dory. Terry just wanted to be Terry, the Briscoe brothers, same thing. Little brother, Jerry, big brother, Jack, they had a role, they had their place, but they both were amazing workers and together they were as good a tag team as you'll ever see. Uh, but to be an angle, uh, and you, you can't be ordinary. You can't be average because, you know, we knew Kurt was going to be a hall of fame guy. He could stay healthy. Right. So, uh, in any event, uh, that's kind of how I see that. I, I, uh, it was just, it, it wasn't going to work out. It was, he a good at, was Eric a good athlete? Yeah. But as we know, he's had some issues and those are troublesome. You can't run from your past. You can only learn from it, as we said earlier. And some of his issues were troublesome. And, uh, I think as time has moved on, uh, those, those, uh, thoughts have been proven out. Well, we know that, you know, he is going to pop up at the survivor series in 2000 and he'll have uh, a little stint in OVW. I think he pops back up in a three, maybe on his build 
uh, to the uh, WrestleMania match for his brother and Brock Lesnar, but nothing ever really sustainable. Your old pal, Dr. Death winds up back in all Japan. Did, uh, you have any hand in that? I know that sounds a little simplistic or a little silly, but we've talked about Dr. Death in long form very recently, but you know, after him being on the sidelines, uh, with the whole WCW thing going sideways, he's looking for another gig and he, le- he winds up back in all Japan where he probably had his greatest success. Were you in touch with him during this era? Did you try to call in any favors or anything like that? Didn't call any favors. He didn't need any favors called in for, he was a star there and had drawn big money. And, uh, and Mr. Baba loved him because he was reliable more often than not. Except for a couple of fumbles, a little stumble here, or there for doc, doc had, uh, doc was a lot like Raven in the sense that he was his own worst enemy at times. He had, he had, he, he had some, he made poor decisions occasionally, but when you, when you got him in the town, like in, in Tokyo or whatever, you know, you knew he was going to deliver and the fans believed in him. So, uh, I didn't have to call anything in for doc. He was already a made man there and, uh, he just returned and. You know, I was always happy for him to have work. You know, I love the guy. I still love him. Think about him almost every day. But, uh, you know, he didn't need anybody talking for him, especially in Japan. Someplace else, maybe. Uh, he'd have the same rep that Bob Hollywood had. Right. Can't, he's not a great extemporaneous speaker. He wasn't comfortable in that role. So he needed a manager. He needed a, a, a Paul Heyman or a Jim Cornette or J.J. Dillon or something along those lines that could articulate right. Uh, his, his, uh, his goals or his, the match or under, sell, sell, sell. And doc wasn't really good at that. And he wasn't, he, he didn't start off being a good talker. He was, he, he got better as time went on and he tried. God damn. He tried. He just wasn't one of his gifts. Let's talk about Kevin Nash. Um, Nash has been uh, telling everyone he's ready in 15 months to get back to the WWF as one last run as big daddy cool, uh, for a final run with, uh, Austin or rock or whoever else. And then he wants to retire on Vince's booking committee. And this is coming out while he still works for WCW. That's and, odd, man. And, and Meltzer writes, while I've always believed that when push came to shove, McMahon would take Nash back a few months ago when Nash came calling saying he wanted out of WCW and would try and get a release. McMahon gave him a low ball figure and told him it would be best for him to stay put because he couldn't match the 1.6 million that Nash was getting in WCW. Apparently Vince polled a lot of folks in the front office, all of whom were very negative about bringing him back into the WWF. And, uh, they call this current locker room environment. They have perhaps the best they'd ever had. And Meltzer would sort of freestyle that Nash might be doing this to get an early jump for a renewal and get some more years added at the same rate. (laughs) And, uh, he also says Jim Ross actually on the WWF website wrote about older injury prone guys using the WWF as leverage that the WWF has no interest in Meltzer would say one could take that at face value, which is actually how I'd take it. I guess one could also take it that if the WWF wants someone and they probably, and they publicly say they don't, it drives their value to WCW down so they can make them a lower offer, therefore making it easier for the WWF to sign them. But still, I don't see the company having any reason to want Nash Luger or Hogan at this point, uh, because they all have more long run downsides than their potential upsides. Do you remember Kevin Nash trying to, uh, have a conversation about maybe 
coming in or getting a golden parachute of sorts from WCW over to the WWF? Of course. Yeah, no doubt. Uh, you know, the thing about Kevin was to me, the biggest issues for me regarding Kevin, uh, I thought his attitude could be always, uh, he's a smart guy. Uh, he's like a great salesman. He knows how to get the order. You don't get the order if you don't ask for it. And Kevin was, uh, would have been a very easily adaptable to our locker room. A lot of the guys who were there were friends of his, whether they want to admit it or not. Uh, and the same thing you'd have from the top guys feeding Vince's in, input, uh, they can, they can go in the sense as well. He's had all these injuries. He's got a bad shoulder. He's got bad knees, blah, blah, blah. You know, Kevin was a great athlete, played basketball, at Tennessee and the sec, your conference. And, uh, you know, he, he'd been running at a seven foot guy running up and down a hardwood court. It's not good for your joints. And, and so he, he paid the price for that. But as far as adapting to the locker room, I never, I never had any concerns that he could not adapt to the locker room because he came from a real team environment. He, he, he was in a locker room for the volunteers. He was in a locker room. I think he's played some, uh, uh, some little pro ball, uh, in Europe or something. I can't recall off the top of my head, but, uh, but yeah, there was guys that want to knock him were guys that didn't want the competition. I always felt like probably his biggest ally was probably triple H their buddies. And there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, you're trying to get your buddy a job and, uh, so forth and so on. So, uh, yeah, it was a, it was a topic of discussion and a lot of people that were still there in TV production and in, in the creative, uh, remembered, you know, when Kevin was leaving, he could be a little surly. He, you know, he was very, uh, uh, I don't want to say aloof, but he could be very, he was very self-confident. I'm going to WCW for a huge payday for years to come. And so, you know, that rubbed some people the wrong way because it was a genuine com uh, competition. Uh, the competition on Monday nights, uh, it supersedes anything that you could describe, uh, now on Wednesday nights with, uh, AEW and NXT without question. So, uh, but that was there was a lot of competitive feel the rivalry thing. So I think that was a situation there. You know, he left us and he went to them. Now he wants to come back to us cause we're hot, blah, blah, blah. Uh, you know, we're not always fair to Kevin, but, uh, he was not a popular choice to bring back at that time. And quite frankly, he was in a no lose situation. If we hired him, he's going to get a decent deal and get what he wants another run probably. And maybe, uh, in, on a, on a booking committee thing or working on a creative, I don't think that would last long because those guys hours are thankless and their job is thankless, but, uh, he, he, he just, it wasn't a popular uh, point of discussion. I would have had no issues whatsoever. If Vince said, get a deal done, Jr. I'd have got a deal done and it would have been fine. Let's talk about raw on July 10th. It's another sellout in San Jose, 408 grand at the gate, 13,700 some odd fans. On the show, we would see Jericho beat road dog in five minutes and nine seconds with a lion salt and uh, triple H who's obsessed with Jericho throws a fit backstage. Triple H shoves road dog down. X-Pac has to step in as peacemaker later in the show. Stephanie comes out and tries to lure Jericho into the ring. This is directly from the observer. 
by promising he could take sexual liberties with her in front of almost 14,000 fans. Jericho seemed intrigued by the idea, but it was all a swerve. DX was waiting with sledgehammers and Jericho never came out. And then he did his speech on what Stephanie was. And since it's Monday and not a Thursday, he called her a hoe. <laughs> and then road dog later in the show pretends to leave because he's mad about triple H and X-Pac having a match. They wrestle for a few minutes before Jericho comes out to attack triple H. But what do you know? It was all a trap. They all turn on Jericho dog comes back with a sledgehammer. Stephanie slaps him big time attempt at a heat angle with several sledgehammer shots, Jericho coughing up blood and eventually going out in an ambulance with his head covered in the proverbial crimson mask. And then Benoit and rock ends with Shane attacking Earl. And, uh, then taking over as referee, Benoit gets the crossface on rock, puts his hand down, reaching for the ropes, punches the mat twice. And Shane takes it as a tap in just under five minutes. Hebner gets up, reverses Shane's decision and, uh, then gets up to deliver a rock bottom to another ref. But this is really selling the hell out of Benoit's crossface as a real threat. So I do think that, you know, with the criticism from Meltzer that, Hey, these guys aren't exactly you know, been built as, as really strong opponents for rock and triple H man. They're doing a lot here to build some heat and tell a story for both Benoit and Jericho. Are they not? Yeah. It shows the rocks professionalism, Conrad, you know, rock six, five, uh, in that neighborhood, Benoit five, 10 or that neighborhood. Uh, so where a lot of guys said, you know, how do I sell for a little guy like that? You know, uh, the rock was so much ahead of the game in that regard because he knew he could get great matches with bit with Benoit and rock was about having great matches and stealing the show and being the guy, the match in the match and being the guy that everybody talked about when the show went off the air. So I always appreciated rocks of spirit and his character for that, because a lot of guys might not have been so great gracious and so, uh, uh unselfish. When working with Benoit, which I don't understand. I'm not sure some people are listening said, well, I don't get that Jr. How could that be? Well, it could be, it could be he's five ten, maybe. And that was the whole issue there. I've made this issue taught this point many times that, you know, the look includes your height because nobody looked any better, uh, you know, uh, than Benoit. He looked like a, you know, he bodybuilder body, athletic body, whatever you want to say. Looked great, but he wasn't tall. And that always, unfortunately was his, but the, on the other hand, it motivated him. It motivated Eddie Guerrero was even shorter. And so, you know, here you got Eddie Guerrero having a great run with Brock Lesnar. It looked like a huge mismatch, but I remember the match they had in the cow palace was, I, I, I didn't call that match. Michael Cole did, uh, it was, uh, a joy to watch. And how Eddie compensated for his size and Benoit did that every single night and rock being a student of the game and a third generation talent was well aware that it's all about who you're dancing with is how the damn dance is going to be judged and, and turn out. So, uh, I always appreciated that, that rock and he was generous to Chris. And, uh, that was, to me was a, a hell of a good thing to do. TV taping the next day for SmackDown. It's in Oakland. Another sellout prototype. John Cena here, uh, does win a match here in four minutes and 36 seconds. It's a dark match. Uh, but he's the guy that we talked about earlier featured in the discovery channel special. Meltzer wants to remind us of that. And he says, 
match was really bad, but prototype showed a ton of charisma and is going to make it someday. Yeah. Yeah. And he sure did L- later in that show, we would see triple H beat undertaker. Yeah. Meltzer would say much better than you'd think angle came out and tried to hit triple H with a sledgehammer, but triple H is, is going to move and he hits the undertaker instead. So we're, we're still building the storyline here on both raw and SmackDown and uh, misspoke earlier, uh, what we're taping every week, the day after Raw, of course, is SmackDown that airs on Thursday. And, uh, we get a little bit of a note of an update because as you've noticed, Austin's not on any of this. This is the year where he was out with the big neck injury and Meltzer would say he seems to be in much better condition, particularly his thighs are said to be stronger than they've been in years, which is an indication that he's been training very intensely. And, um, he's told the WWF that he wants to return and do as much as he can, but he doesn't want to live off of his name and be like, he feels like Hulk Hogan is in this era, but he's also got some opportunities now because of this Viacom CBS deal, because as you may remember, he played Jake cage on Nash bridges, the prior two seasons. Were you nervous at this point that maybe he wouldn't feel like he could be his old self and opt for Hollywood in 2000. I mean, we know he's going to come back and, and have some ups and downs, but he could have just hung it up right here. He had made enough money, even in that brief WWF run. Uh, no, I knew he would come back because it was what he loved. He'd worked all his life to, uh, become a star in pro wrestling and become a star in the biggest league of all. Uh, so no, I had no doubts that he was going to come back because that was his true passion. And the way that he would have exited if he had not come back is certainly not the way he wanted his wrestling story to end. So, uh, no, I was not surprised. I'm not also what would not have been shocked if he found his niche in Hollywood and he, and he, you know, he's done, he, he loves doing reality television and I'm assuming that, uh, he'll be doing something with the USA network when the virus issues are better, better able to be addressed. But no, he was ball players want to play ball Conrad and he was a ball player. And so, uh, and he would not, and if he was going to come back, I felt totally confident that if once we got in cleared medically, that there would be no, uh, half speed, no three quarters speed. He's going to come back if he's stone cold to the very best of his abilities, or he isn't coming back. So I, I knew that, that his attitude would be where it was. His mindset would be where it was. He's very competitive. And you know, the, the new kid on the block, the, the Dwayne Johnson, AKA the rock was, was doing pretty damn well. So, and Steve saw the potential in those matches, uh, and saw the fact the company was healthy. He was leaving money on the ground. You know, Austin was making, if you had a house that drew 400 grand net, uh, for example, and he was in the main event. He made 5%. He made 20 grand. That's a lot of money for a day's work. Yeah, it is $300,000 net gets you $15,000 payday. So he was, he was a lot of that money was now he was, he had a contract. He was getting a weekly. Certainly he was being paid, but the upside of this whole thing and the way that process worked there was not letting guys find their comfort zone being on salary. And I think that's a kiss of death in pro wrestling. You can't take away all the incentives, the incentives, uh, much like you would not take away from your commission salesperson. So, uh, he loved that challenge of getting the houses up and being able to work on top and, and make those big checks. So, uh, yeah, you know, he, 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 he would make more in one night 
than he made a year in his rookie year. He remembered all that. He remembered, you know, going to Memphis and eating potatoes every day because that's all he could afford. Uh, so he, he had a good memory. He was very thankful for his run, but he was not, he, he had not finished the run. So I, I always thought he'd be back. And if he did come back, uh, he would not half-ass anything and he didn't. No, he did not. Let's, uh, let's keep it moving here and talk about Michael Hayes. He makes the news here. Meltzer would say he's been helping with television writing quote. They have a three man team of former TV writers and Hayes is used to bounce ideas off of, and then tweaked him to where they'll fit within the pro wrestling environment before Vince sees the show. This is uh, sort of the start of Hayes moving away from being quote unquote, just an agent or, or just an on-air talent or just in ring and really a rise in office power. Uh, I mean, we know that now he's in the inner circle, but that wasn't necessarily the case here in 2000, but this is the start of it. Is it not? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Uh, I remember Bill Watts used to say that Michael Hayes had one of the best minds in wrestling. Right. And, uh, even though they, you know, Michael will still tell you the story that he, he thinks he got screwed on a payoff in uh, Superdome one year, Yep. Uh, 88 years ago. <laughs> When Edwin Edwards was still the, the governor, he's, he's long been in jail and out and so forth. But nonetheless, uh, Michael's got a great mind and that comes from being a young kid getting into the territories and only earning what you, the tickets that you sell. That's your, that's your, that's your way. That's grocery money, rent money, car payment, money, living money. So he understood what it took to be a good heel. He understood, he understood the value of heat and I'm sure that he still does, but you know, again, I don't know that he's allowed to do, I'm sure he isn't allowed to do everything that he would, he would generally want to do if he had complete autonomy, but Michael Hayes is a, is a brilliant wrestling mind. And, uh, he, I'm sure again, he's had to adapt some of his philosophies and beliefs in today's world, especially today's WWE world. But, uh, Michael was a good get on that the creative team. And, you know, uh, he almost lost it all. At one time there, but, uh, he has rebounded and he has, uh, been a valuable member of their team, uh, ever since, uh, we rarely, uh, we rarely, uh, communicate, uh, and not on purpose. I'm not mad at him. It's not the wrestling thing. <clears throat> it's just, he's busy as am I, he did send me a text the other day saying that he had read under the black cat and loved it. And which I appreciated him taking the time to, to get the book and to read it and, uh, and then to get back to me with some feedback. So. You know, we still are friendly. It's just that we have our, we have different lives. It's like, you know, the same thing I can say about, you know, Bruce and I were joined to hit for years. We, we rarely communicate, you know, uh, text message here and there, just, hey, you know, holidays, birthdays, you know, Stephanie's not feeling well, something's going on there. I'll check in, but it's just our lives change. Conrad, you know how that shit goes. Sure. And, and I'm sure that if you weren't doing podcasts with so many of these guys, uh, uh, that you have on your roster, I don't know how much you'd be communicating with us because you're busy. Yeah. You got a life, you got a wife, you got jobs and you got to take care of bull Ramos. Yes, I do. <laughs> let's, uh, let's talk about some other news and notes here. This, this one tickled me, man, going unopposed raw drew a 6.17 rating and a 10.1 share its lowest unopposed rating since 1998. Can you imagine a 6.17 rating being considered disappointing? <laughs> well, not in today's terms. I think sometimes people in today's, you know, you compare, uh, 
ratings, whether it be AEW ratings on Wednesday night versus NXT ratings on Wednesday night or the raw rating or the SmackDown rating, it's a different landscape. You can't compare then that six one and the audience that we drew to today's television landscape. There are so many more options to watch. You know, there's so many more, uh, things that, uh, you know, that's that fragment the audience. It's a different ball game. It's a totally a different ball. It's like saying, well, you know, uh, uh, there's better uh, NFL Monday night football is not drawing the ratings. All the NFL is in trouble. Well, you know, let's take it easy here. Uh, the, the issue is there's much better counter programming on television. Now there are more choices. There's more options. And, and so I think there's a story to be told about that, but yeah, that's 6.1, you know, again, I, I never lived or died by any of those ratings because you got that, you got the ratings came out on Tuesday. So everybody could bitch and moan or celebrate in their own way, whatever that might be, but we got to do it again in five days or six days, whatever it is. Yeah. So it was like, don't, don't get to, I tell the guys, I this all the time. You know, we've been doing very well in the ratings. Uh, we win more weeks than we lose on Wednesdays, but don't get too high over any of it because next week you got to do it. We got to do it again. And that's how I've always had my philosophy of that deal. It kept me grounded. It kept me from falling into a malaise and, uh, and I also did. It kept me from celebrating prematurely. So, uh. Finishing prematurely, Conrad, in any walk of life <laughs> is not a good thing. Yeah, I agree. You got to play it all the way through. Um, let's talk about the highlights real quick from the June 17th Raw. We're going to see Lita take a bump off a ladder backwards through a table while she and Stratus were both struggling on top of a ladder. The Hardys brought out a ladder with uh, the match with the Dudleys, which included Jeff doing a plancha off the top of the ladder in the ring to the floor. Uh, that and the six man with Benoit Meltzer would say were the in-ring show highlights. Lita winds up doing a stretcher job. Uh, it also appears that the SmackDown rating had everyone spooked according to Dave, because they upped the raunch big time, even rock getting away with using the word chicken shit on the air. Uh, the TV main event here is undertaker and Kane over triple H and Kurt angle. Meltzer would write angles role to stay heel is so constantly run away from the undertaker since he's starting to get cheered. That doesn't make for very exciting matches though. Undertaker and angle brawl to the back, leaving triple H with Kane. Triple H sets up the pedigree and here comes Jericho. Triple H drops the pedigree and instead gets choke slammed. And after the match, Jericho hits the ring and attacks triple H who bails. And then, uh, of course, once they go off the air, they have their, their dark match, but we're trying to build to a real crescendo, if you will, for this pay-per-view. And we're trying to make some guys who maybe weren't seen as main event talent. And we continue that trend the next day on SmackDown where Guerrero wins a short three-way over Malenko and Saturn. And as rock is signing an autograph, Benoit shows up and puts him in a crossface. Uh, angle then gets a late push hitting Kane with a chair, uh, and, uh, costing the undertaker of the match. We're doing all we can on our sort of go home March towards fully loaded. And, and you watch this show for the first time in a long time. And I think we both had the same takeaway. They were successful. The readers of the wrestling observer gave fully loaded 77% thumbs up 10 and a half percent thumbs down 12 and a half percent thumbs in the middle. And they thought the best two matches, and it wasn't close. Uh, the best matches Jericho and triple H the second best matches rock and Benoit. 
And just like Dave suggested, the worst match was undertaker, Kurt angle, probably just styles clash there. You saw this for the first time in 20 years. Did you think they did a good job building up towards the pay-per-view and, and do you agree that this was a thumbs up show? Yeah, absolutely. It was a lot of fun to call. Uh, the bill was, uh, systematic and organized because you had a direction, you had a destination more specifically. And when you have, when you book like that, when you know that, okay, I'm going to start this story here in, uh, on, in May, we're going to blow it off at SummerSlam. You, you know, you know where you're headed. You know where you're going to be in May when some of these stories uh, peak and they, they, they had the climax there. So yeah, I, it was good storytelling. I mean, even down to matches like, uh, Val Venus and Rikishi had a story. Yeah. Everything all, had a story. Yeah. Everything had a story and that's good writing. And, and I should tip my black hat to the writers on that one because it worked out real well because they were provided the direction, uh, to, to travel. They, they knew their destination. We knew what we we're going to do at fully loaded, for example, in this case. So yeah, it was a good, a good, it was a good show, fun show. I enjoyed it for a lot of reasons, including, uh, being able to call it in the reunion arena there in Dallas, which at that time was the arena, uh, you know, and so many Von Eric Freebird stuff, uh, the Dallas Mavericks played there. There are a lot of big things happening at reunion arena concerts. It was a, it was a big time venue. And, uh, so yeah, I, I it was a fun show to do. I, I had a lot of fun doing that one. And, and I thought the guys did a great job telling their stories and, and, the, and sometimes the matches exceed expectations and sometimes yeah. they don't. And the angle undertaker thing, what you just mentioned, I just think that was just a, like you said, they say styles make fights. I just don't think that these, they had the, 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 they just weren't on the same page all the time. Yeah. And, and that's not a, that's not like, oh, the bad attitude is I've got to be at it. got to be dirt here. What's the dirt JR? Well, the dirt is, is that. You know, I don't know that Austin and Undertaker had great chemistry all the time. They liked the hell out of each other. They're, they're friends. They have great respect for each other. But sometimes, you know, it just doesn't click. It's one of those nights, one of those pairings. And so what you try to do, you recognize that and get your ass out of that booking as fast as you can so you don't lessen the worth and the perception of two big stars. That's not fair to them, and it's not good booking. So, uh, but it was a good show, man. It was a good show. I, I uh, I, I thought it was, uh, a lot of fun to do. And again, being in reunion was a thrill for me after all those years. We should mention that Meltzer said, and what was considered a throwaway show between King of the ring and SummerSlam, the WWF put on arguably the best pay-per-view show of the year, uh, which is pretty remarkable. Um, the preliminary numbers are 415,000 buys, which is a 1.04 buy rate a 5.34 million company gross. And he would say any figure over 350,000 buys would have to be considered a success considering they were putting so-called unproven drawing talent in the main slots. And also because Benoit was not hyped and portrayed as rock's biggest challenge yet. And simply a transition challenge before getting back to triple H, he would comment that after the first six matches, it seemed like just an average show, but the final two matches were as strong of a pair of main event matches on any pay-per-view in a long, long time. Let's get right into it. The first match we've got the Hardy boys and Lita beating test Albert and Trish Stratus, 13 minutes and 12 seconds. Meltzer called it a good opener. 
He gave it two and three quarter stars. I thought this was a good match. I always liked the Hardys with Lita. And then at and, and the time, I didn't really appreciate testing Albert. I think I like them better now than I did, you know, back then. What'd you think of this one? Uh, basic same, uh, analogy. The match is really about, uh, Trish and Lita yep. more often than not. Uh, and so, and they had really amazing chemistry and, and they still do it. their meet and greets and things they do together when they were able to do those things. But I'm with you, uh. Uh, Andrew Martin and, uh, and, and Matt Bloom, uh, were underrated. They didn't have a lot of time to mature as a team, but I thought the opener was exactly what it should have been enough high spots, enough sizzle with the ladies there, uh, a good way to start the show. Let me, uh, let's go to the next match here, but before we do, uh, let's take a minute and just appreciate who all's in this. I mean, look at what all Matt Hardy. Jeff Hardy, Lita, Trish Stratus, and Matt Bloom have achieved in the business. Uh, Andrew Martin's the only sad case in this deal. And he left us way, way too soon, but this is the opening match and, and look at all the talent you've got here. It's no wonder that you were in love with this roster. Yeah. Well, they played big, man. You know, you got to get on, you got that lead off hitter getting on base all the time is a, is great for any baseball person. And, uh, when you have Matt and Jeff and Lita and Trish, and then there's other two cats who are still trying, like they were working their ass off to get, to get really good. And, and, and they were a team, a team that Vince would probably put more stock in than even the Hardys because they're so big, you know, Matt Bloom's a former uh, ex outstanding college football player, big lineman, wasn't a Clydesdale could have pretty athletic. Andrew had a great look. He came in that same basic group with when I hired edge and Christian. And Andrew had a good look. Uh, so yeah, they, th- this is a deep, th- to illustrate how good this roster was, that was the opener. Right. <laughs> Next up, um, we've got a, a really, I don't know. It feels like a, a match from a time machine. Taz and Al snow, they get five minutes and 20 seconds. Meltzer would say little heat fans saw live. This is something of a popcorn match. There was even a boring chant at one point. Snow did a good job in this basic match including getting near falls after a leg drop off the top and a moonsault. He went for head, but Taz clips him from behind, gives him a captured suplex in his choke submission, which snow broke for the first time, but couldn't break a second time star and a quarter. You know, these guys both were, were main eventers in ECW. Of course, Taz was one of the flag bears there for a long time, came in with a big push, not that long ago, what six months. And now. It feels like the bloom is off the rose for Taz already. Unfortunately, the bloom came off the rose on Taz much too soon. Yeah. In my opinion, uh, you know, he is, he was looked at, at being dangerous, uh, and that you can go to the, I think it was the belly to back suplex. He gave Kurt angle that six months prior that some people so well, I'm not taking that, you know, fuck him. I'm not going to take that move. And how, and what is he? Five, eight, same shit, man. Same stuff. Same story, another verse, another chapter, but yeah, there was, those guys are in a tough spot. You're following this sizzle filled, uh, six person opener to a match that had no backstory to any degree, any discernible degree. So they were in a tough spot and, uh, did the, did the match suck? No, it didn't suck. It just didn't mean anything. Right. 
let's, uh, let's mention there's a couple of backstage skits on this show. Uh, one, the undertaker is chasing angle around backstage. Sometimes he's on the motorcycle. Sometimes angle is messing with his motorcycle and chasing him. And there's other times where Stephanie keeps getting flowers delivered, which we assume are from Kurt angle and, um, triple H is not too happy about that. The third match on the card, Perry Saturn wins the European title from Eddie Guerrero in eight minutes and 10 seconds. China chases Terry away from the ring. Saturn chases away China. Guerrero looks very good here with hurricane Rana's coming from all directions. Saturn had a small cut on the top of his head and the finish would see Saturn clothesline China through the Spanish announcers table. Terry comes back out. Saturn gives Guerrero a low blow and an elbow drop off the top. And there's a clean pin two and a half stars. You know, these guys came over together from the WCW jump, but in hindsight, I don't know. I probably would have kept it with Eddie. What'd you think? Surprised that, uh, the titles fit on Perry, but it was a way to get a, a win by hooker crook in a heel vernacular, uh, a, that to win by any cost, unfair advantages, low blows, et cetera, et cetera, that, uh, there was hope there that that might help push, uh, the old push Conrad. You gotta have a goddamn push brother. You just gotta <laughs> have it. And, uh, and, and so it was a way to help to get Perry over because Losing on a screw, uh, by Eddie is not going to hurt Eddie. Very rarely kids, a loss, a loss does not kill you. Very rarely. I can't name you a, and I'm sure there are some, I'm sure some of our more learned fans than I will have an answer for this. I can't think of any singular loss that stymied or ruined somebody's uh, career. It just doesn't work that way in my estimation. So, uh, in any event, I think that was just, it was an opportunity to get Perry, uh, to another level to be more valuable to the company and it, and the loss did not hurt Eddie whatsoever. Let's get to the next match here. We've got the acolytes defeating the WWF tag champs, edge and Christian by DQ five minutes and 29 seconds. They do a bit earlier in the show where Christian was pretending to have the heaves. And he brings in a doctor and commissioner Mick Foley. And, uh, just before the match time, Foley catches Christian in the act of pretending to throw up. And, uh, of course they're busted and this is fun stuff. Edge and Christian come out and do their fun. mic work running down Texas. They even talk about the JFK assassination and, uh, basically joke that he would have killed himself if he had to spend any more time in Dallas. Jeez. Yeah. Maybe not the best thing to do here. Uh, star and a half Meltzer would say the finish ruined the match. Obviously with a DQ, we're not going to be high on that on a pay-per-view, but two hall of fame tag teams, man, the hits just keep coming. It's, it's a, it's an all-star cast here. What'd you think of this match? I liked it better than Meltzer liked it because I knew what it was intended to, to do. I'm sure he does too, but stand a standalone rating might be accurate, but how it fit into the, the overall, uh, makeup of the, of the, of the event of that card. Didn't bother me a bit. You, you got what you thought you were going to get. You know, the, the, uh, cocky sizzle laden heels edge and Christian, uh, got beat up by the acolytes. Right. And people liked the acolytes beating up people. <laughs> they liked the acolytes brawling. That's why they didn't get over as a heel team. They had, they, you can't get over as a heel team. If you don't want to retreat from time to time right. and gain unfair advantages by cheating. If you just beat the shit out of somebody, 
<laughs> what's, the, what, what's there to hate? Hey, it's the same theory, Conrad, about Kurt Angle as a heel. Why am I supposed to dislike somebody that makes me laugh? Right. Tell me the logical reason that I should hold villain angst against an individual who actually entertains me and makes me laugh. And that, and Kurt did that more often than not, which was, I don't know if he even knew he, he was doing it at that point in his career. He might've, and he probably don't had a hint, but you can't be a villain and be the, uh, belly laugh, uh, provider for your audience. It just doesn't work out that way. And that's where Kurt was. And so, uh, the same basic thing with, uh, with, uh, uh, the, the acolytes, people came to see one thing from those guys fight brawl, and they were damn good at it. And, you know, Edge and Christian, were going to make them laugh. I mean, as you said, this is definitely Brian's era for comedy and he's writing hilarious TV, but in a conventional good guys versus bad guys, who do I cheer? Who do I boo? That doesn't always work. Uh, the match you mentioned earlier, a cage match here. That's almost a forgotten deal here. Val Venus and Rikishi. I can't believe this actually happened, but they're in a cage match with 14 minutes and 10 seconds. Of course, the big thing that everybody talks about and remembers from this is Rikishi climbs to the top of the cage, teases it forever, and then comes off the top with a splash. And Meltzer would say that was one scary looking spot because you're talking about a 400 pound man doing the same spot. A 240 pound Jimmy Snuka just gave Jeff Jarrett a concussion doing, uh, the ring may have broken or was at least damaged because some of the bumps later in the show had a different clanging sound to them, uh, two and three quarter stars. What a moment this is just sort of halfway through the card Rikishi off the top of the damn cage. Yeah. I didn't like the finish where Taz came back and, and, uh, hit him with a TV camera. I didn't see any need for it. And they should have gone right home. Uh, once Rikishi drops, go home, man. Yeah. You're not going to get this audience any higher than you got them right now with this this magnificent move. And, uh, so in any event, that's, I didn't, I didn't think we needed Taz on that one, but you know, if if it was going to, it was like a gas for a reaching for that tag to help get him over. And, uh, and, you know, maybe re, re, restart his jumpstart his deal, but you can't go from choking out Kurt angle type thing in the garden, uh, to slam a door shut on Val Venus's head and get over. It's a different set of rules, different set of circumstances, but I thought that Val and Rikishi had a hell of a match. I really did. I thought it was one of the biggest surprises, if not the biggest surprise the entire night. And again, made even more impressive by. Rikishi's a leap of death, uh, at 400 off the top of the cage. And let's not take, let's not forget about the guy that had to lay there and take it. You know, that's, that's gotta be, you kind of wonder, have we made the right call here? Cause I'm, I'm laying there selling on my back, picking upward. And there he is cast a large shadow from that high up. So Val Venus should get credit for that as well. Let's talk about Shane McMahon coming out to challenge the rock to a non-title match. He's wearing a rock, just bring it t-shirt and rock does come out, which gives Benoit the chance to go to the dressing room and tear up all of rocks clothes. And the next match is the one that for whatever reason, just missed undertaker gets a win over Kurt angle in seven minutes and 34 seconds. Meltzer says undertaker destroyed angle early, refusing to pin him on two occasions. Angle came back and worked on undertaker's knee for a few minutes until undertaker made a comeback, hitting a choke slam 
and his high power bomb for the pin. They had one real good exchange of punches in mid ring, but other than that, it was really nothing to say positive about this match. And angle was, was booked to not look competitive. It was exactly what I expected, but I was still dumbfounded when it was over three quarters of a star. And it does sort of put the brakes on Kurt angle. What'd you think? Never always a head scratcher. How you could book Kurt angle to, uh, look, not look competitive. Yeah. It didn't do undertaker any favors. So he beat a lesser than guy than he could have beat if Kurt angle was just being Kurt angle. The other thing I'll fall back on, and I think it's accurate, is the fact that Kurt didn't have any heel heat. And Taker was your baby face. You got a seven foot baby face against a guy that has no heat. It just doesn't equate. It doesn't work on the basic premise of of uh, uh you know, just human interaction, human reaction, whatever the, or how you however you want to describe it. So uh it was just you gotta have that other side. You gotta have that you know, that, uh, that villainous element, uh, heel baby face situation. I still believe it to be today. It's accurate. I think it was accurate then, but Kirk came in tepid at best. And he really didn't know how to be a heel at that point in time. So he was just entertaining as hell. So now tell me again, why I'm supposed to dislike him. Can't figure that one out. So I just think it was a, that he was getting bad. Uh, the, the agents needed to be more affirmative. And his positioning, I think that, you know, Vince, again, maybe on that week, he may have had second thoughts that Kurt was really ever going to make it. If you can imagine that, but you never know in that, in that company sometimes. So, uh, it just styles make fights. We said, so I know it's an old cliche. We've used it before this very broadcast, but you know, it was just, they didn't, they didn't jive. And I don't blame either guy. If Kurt came in with a lot of heat, a lot of momentum. Uh, then that match would have been a whole different presentation and would not have got three quarters of one star, which I still find hard to, to believe quite frankly. Let's get to two of the best matches of the year in 2000. Triple H is going to beat Chris Jericho in a last man standing match. They get plenty of time, uh, 23 minutes, 11 seconds. Uh, something else here, man. Uh, Stephanie's going to come out. He's going to, uh, at some point Jericho has triple H in the walls of Jericho. He's going to drop that and then put it on Stephanie. Uh, I mean, there's, there's blood and guts and they're doing everything they can here with the sledgehammer and it's good stuff. I mean, triple H is, is pouring a gusher here and Jericho's hitting missile drop kicks and face busters on chairs and really remarkable stuff. Both guys are down for the nine count eventually. Triple H gets up and then collapses, but he wins the match. It's four and a half stars. I mean, they wind up even going through the announcer's table. Really great stuff. If you're going to watch one match on the card, I'm going to recommend it be this one. Don't get me wrong. The spectacle of Rikishi coming off the cage is something else, but this is old school, great, uh, traditional, hardcore blood and guts wrestling that tells a story. I loved it. What'd you think? It, it featured drama, Conrad, real, believable, plausible drama. And we, you know, I, I've said on the show before that, you know, I'm a big fan of, uh, uh, of the SCU show that the, the Dick Wolf has done such an amazing job on CBS over the years of, uh, ramrodding, creating, uh, and same thing with Chicago PD. I'm big fans of both those shows. And because I'm a fan of drama, do they have comedy inter, inter, interlace occasionally? Yeah. A little humor. 
tongue-in-cheek stuff, double entendre stuff. But the drift of that show, those shows, is the drama and the episodic nature of producing that show in a dramatic fashion captivates me and I think captivates a lot of people. My God, SVU's been on TV in prime time for over 20 years, and now it's on cable everywhere. It's like Seinfeld. You can't turn it on, turn the TV on without it being on someplace. So I think the dramatic aspect of that match, the color, the blood added to that. And let's not forget who's in the ring. You know, you know how high I am on Chris Jericho. I think he's the MVP of AEW. I think he's a, he's a bona fide hall of famer, whether he ever gets in the WWE hall of fame or not, that would be a major injustice simply because he he's on another team. Uh, but triple H was having a banner year. He may have been the, he may have been the top, top hand in the business that year. Uh, some people thought so, but he's, uh, he was just a, he had, he had, he was coming together, man. He was coming together big time. And, uh, you know, again, he's, he, he just had a phenomenal, phenomenal, uh, year, uh, uh, in a ring. His promos got better. His look got better. His persona got better. And then of course you got Chris Jericho, who I always believed in still do. So it was a, it was a match made in wrestling heaven, quite frankly. But I do think without being gratuitous with the comment that the blood added to the drama and this match being last man standing, it's not the inside cradle quick. Let's catch a quick one. This is the last man standing. So you got to beat somebody, you know, up so badly. They can't stand up before a 10 count. That's violence. That's aggression. And with violence and real violence comes blood. And, and so those guys gave it everything they had. And, uh, you know, I, I Meltzer gave it a four and a half stars, which is a beautiful rating. I probably would eliminate the half and give him another star. Cause I don't, I don't think that the kid have done any better. Really remarkable stuff. Go back and check it out. It is a little curious that, you know, these, these new guys were trying to make, well, they both lose because the rock pins Chris Benoit in 22 minutes and nine seconds to retain the title. Meltzer says they had a real tough act to follow, but this was a tremendously well-executed match. And in that sense, it was better than the previous match. Although the other match had a better finish and it was built better with more gimmicks associated, uh, four and a quarter stars. You know, they do, uh, a weird deal here where they say that the belt can change hands on a DQ. And so Hebner goes down because Shane hits Hebner with a chair. And with Hebner down, Rock gets Benoit in the crossface. They do a bit of a total dusty finish with Hebner crawling over and signaling for the bell like Rock had won with the move. And instead, Hebner tells Finkel he thought Rock hit him with a chair, DQs the Rock, and awards the title to Benoit. Fans are starting to pelt the ring with what they thought was a title change. Not so fast. Foley comes back out and says even though the title could change hands on a DQ, he didn't see a DQ and ordered the match to continue. Benoit comes back with a rolling German suplex for a near fall, gets the cross face. Rock makes it to the ropes. Rock scores the pin rather suddenly after a rock bottom. And, uh, it's an excellent main event, but it's still hard to make sense out of a storyline where Benoit, the heel in his first main event ever gets laid out on Monday, taps out on Thursday, gets locked in his own hold for an apparent loss on the pay-per-view, but is handed the belt and then gets cleanly pinned a few minutes later. It seems to me like people are trying to, Make sure he failed. That's weird, isn't it? Yeah. Well, 
just bias, ridiculous bias, you know, for a fictional sport, fictional showbiz presentation, all of a sudden we're worried about how tall somebody is. It's a, it's a, it's a sad commentary. It's almost embarrassing to talk about Conrad. It really is. I mean, here's one of the greatest workers in the world. And you know, he, 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 he was, when we signed him, you know, he, he was, you know, I, I was, I, he was the main reason that I would go out of my way to find uh, new Japan tapes to see, to see him and Eddie when they were working in the new Japan, they were phenomenal, absolutely phenomenal. And I never once started figuring out how tall they were. I just saw these son of bitches are amazing. Their shit looks good. It's an innovative, it's believable. It's realistic. It was just awesome. So, uh, I just think that, you know, that, how do you, how do you intelligently book anybody from any era, from any company and the way that Ben Wallace booked to, to be in the main event, the show closer on that free, that following Sunday, you kill the guy. Uh, but he was, he was, he defied the career death because his work was so believable. And he brought out the best of a lot of people because he was a machine, you know, uh, he's, he, he had that great intensity. I just loved the guy. It, it, you know, I understand how his life ended and I'm not, I'm not glorifying that one fucking bit. It's horrible, horrible. And I don't know how many people are listening to this. that went to the funeral of Nancy and Daniel, but I did, and I might as well walked into the God dang, uh, chapel with a, some sort of, uh, open wounds plague or some shit. It was horrible because nobody from the company, Vince wanted me to go. He didn't want his family exposed to the publicity and the, and animosity. So good old JR steps up again. I'm not even the head of talent relations. So, uh, anyway, it was a, a interesting time for all of us to live and to die and so forth. It was just horrible. But man, he's, he was amazing. And rock with the, like I said earlier, Conrad rock saw this, he realized it and this guy can work. And uh, so they go out and they, how many people can you name with the buildup as it was that could follow the triple H, a Jericho bloodbath and follow it with four stars. I can't make a big list for that. Nope. Short list. You ain't going to use much ink on that one. So I, I'm, uh, I, I thought that those guys really delivered. It shows you the greatness of the rock and his, his perception, his intellect. And it shows you the workhorse believability. The one thing that the office could never take away from Benoit, the, uh, his fan base loved him because he represented what they wanted to see more of not flips and flops and flies, the leg slaps, shit like that. I told somebody the other day at AEW, I said, I, I came out of my little trailer. I said, man, I'm ready to go this last Wednesday. And I said, I'm ready to go fall, uh, the fighter fest one night one. And they said, what do you, what do you mean? I said, well, I'm just sitting in my office all day, of my trailer all day, slapping my leg. I'm fucking ready, brother. <laughs> I am ready to leg slap my way to immortality. So, uh, uh, but that's how I looked at that deal. That was. What they did, if you compare it to how that was built, how they get the momentum coming into it, 
and how the match worked so competitively as it was. Rock didn't guzzle Benoit. Benoit didn't hold back on the rock. He laid his shit in. They were snug. They were physical and they were believable and they were stars and they closed a show that very few guys could have closed as well as they did hats off. Let's, uh, let's keep you going with next week's episode. We're going to be back doing a watch along for the July 31st, 2000 Monday night raw. And I know what you're thinking. Well, that's a random show. Why are we doing that? It's not a random show. It's a special show. WWE ran the Georgia dome in Atlanta. Woof. This is when WCW still around and we're running the Georgia dome shots fired. My friend, the matches that night in the main event, at least it's Lita teaming with the rock to take on triple H and Trish, Trish Stratus. Easy for me to say Kane and big show are going to be working together. China and Eddie Guerrero will team up against Perry Saturn and Val Venus. Rikishi will be working with Taz. APA will be in there with right to censor Benoit and angle will team up to take on the Dudley boys. There'll be a tag team title match with edge and Christian in there with the Hardy boys. And we've got DX, which is road dog and X-Pac working with Al snow and Steve Blackman. But it is a big deal for you guys to make the long trip down to Atlanta and run in the biggest backyard of all the Georgia dome, right on enemy territory, WCW. It should be a fun time. I enjoy watching wrestling with you, man. This will be fun next week. Should be fun. And same here, Conrad. It should be fun. I haven't watched that one second of that, uh, episode of raw since we did it live. So it's going to bring back a lot of memories to share some good feedback on that one. I know we went down there in advance, uh, about, a for the on sale, we took a bunch of talent down there, uh, including Michael Hayes mentioned Michael earlier, myself, and Michael Hayes. I think Austin was there. I can't remember who all was there, but, uh, we had an on sale and, uh, it really jump started the promotion. So. It was fun. You know, again, very competitive. Uh, that's why I get a kick out of people talking about these, like I said earlier, these Wednesday nights, buddy, ain't nothing like the Monday night wars. I'm sorry. It just isn't because the viewership was much bigger. The, the, uh, the audience was less fragmented. There were less options to watch on television than there are now. Those numbers are, it's like comparing an apple to an orange. It just, it just doesn't work out. So I'm looking forward to that a lot. It was, and it was a fun night. I think. I think that was the night that I, me and uh, Dawson and I have a, ma- a tag match with Hunter in China. Not that night. No. Oh, good. I got to talk about embarrassing myself in my own work. She gave me a pedigree with those fucking six inch heels. I thought I was going to land in the uh, Alpharetta or someplace. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't good, man. Wasn't good. Hey, look, I want to thank all everybody listening. I uh, look forward to that show next week. I love these ride. These are watch alongs, ride alongs. I like the, I like the ride along with Tony. We're doing on ad free shows. That's getting some great feedback, which I appreciate. And Tony does as well. Uh, but I want to really thank everybody for supporting my little website. Uh, jrsbbq.com. That's where you get these personalized signed copies of the books. I got 134 books assigned this week. So I got to go get some work done on that deal. Uh, but it's where our, we ship you your barbecue sauce and ketchup and mustard seasoning beef jerky, all that good stuff, uh, jrsbbq.com. I thank you for your support. It means an awful lot to me. Uh, it's not just the, a couple of bucks I put in the bank. Again, my mom and my, and my Jan created these sauce theories and concepts, especially the original. And to me, it's just a way of hugging them a little bit. 
And I appreciate everybody's support of it because I know you're, I know you're not going to buy it. You'll buy it one time as a favor. You'll buy it the second, third time in TFN because it's damn good. And the Conrad's a connoisseur of barbecue. He knows our stuff is good and, uh, it's made with love. And so we appreciate you guys supporting us at jrsbbq.com. It's good. It's a good thing. I, and I, I do embrace, that's what's special about our wrestling audience. We talked about the loyalty. If you have what they want to see, they'll come, they'll get on the ice. They'll, they'll drive through the snow. They'll do whatever they did in the rain. Uh, but on, when, when somebody does a call to order to check us out, check out our site, see if you see anything on there you like, and let, try to do some business with us if you can. And they respond. So uh, I'm very grateful, bottom line, and I appreciate it. Well, and I also want to mention, we've started to see some tweets where people are getting their care packages from you. They're getting their, their, their barbecue sauce. They're getting their Chipotle ketchup. They're getting the main event mustard. And there's a little extra thing in there that they didn't know was coming. And that's one of the things that you guys have started to do over at jrsbbq.com. You give people a little land yap, you give them a little extra and that JR koozie that you've started to see all over social media. No, it's not for sale. You can't go pick that up, but you do get it. When you place an order over at jrsbbq.com, you'll see it, go check it out for yourself. And while you're there, uh, you need to go ahead and get a personalized book from Jim. It is the best wrestling book around. Don't take my word for it. Look up any of the reviews. At worst case, you'll see people saying it's one of the best three, and that's rarefied air. Uh, but it's a look behind the World Wrestling Federation and WWE. Maybe you've never seen before stories about Vince you've never heard. And more importantly, as a lot of our female listeners have pointed out, it really is essentially a love story about the, the story of, of Jan and Jim Ross. And it's a great feel-good read. You don't want to miss it. It's at jrsbbq.com. Of course, you can get the book anywhere. But when you get it from jrsbbq.com, he'll personalize it for you. And you've been having a lot of fun with these personalized autographs. Have you done? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, 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 the push has become the number one uh, requested, uh, uh, in, in, in scripture, the push, we've got the push over Conrad. And so that's kind of cool. It's uh, it a lot of stuff, you know, they they people's imaginations run wild, uh, on the, what they want me to sign. And, and nine times out of 10, they get exactly what they want. Unless it's so profane that I'm embarrassed to write it down. So, uh, but I appreciate that, uh, con words you said there and, and it is grilling season, buddy. You know, I know you got your big green egg. You're fired up. Bischoff's got a big green egg. He talks about a lot. He does. Yeah. I've got, um, I've got a gas grill. I've got an outdoor kitchen upstairs and one downstairs. So I've got a gas grill on both levels and I've got a, a smoker, like a big green egg on one and a vision grill on the other. So we're big grillers. So we're loaded for bear at jrsbbq.com and yeah, lately, uh, we've started to see a little more grilling activity from the Bischoff household. He's grilling like every meal. And, uh, I know he's rocking some of that main event mustard. You got to go check this stuff out, man. I'm telling you, I'm with Jr. I think a lot of fans order this the first time just because they want to support Jr. or they like the show or whatever. Uh, but then once you try it, you'll be back for more. Don't take our yep. word for it. Go check it out right now. Jrsbbq.com. pick up a book and don't forget Jim boy, have we got some silliness over there. Uh, yeah. we've had some fun coming up with, with fun, <laughs> silly designs on shirts. Some of these, I'm almost embarrassed to admit that, uh, we're actually offering, but check it out. It's Jim shirts.com. And, uh, of course you can get this show and all shows that we do here on my little network of shows with Westwood one early and ad free over at adfreeshows.com. But if there's one thing we can all agree on, Jim, it's well, maybe my favorite new shirt from Jim shirts.com less hate. More BBQ. That's it, baby. It's that simple, Conrad. 
And folks, um, this may be on the, uh, may not be popular with all of you. I'm not trying to, to hamper your civil liberties or to restrict your freedoms as, as a citizen of wherever you reside, but wear your goddamn mask. <laughs> I mean, really just wear the damn mask. Maybe that's another shirt. Just wear the damn mask. It's that simple. You say you could be saving your life and the lives of those that are around you. And trust me, uh, I've had, uh, a lot of experience with these COVID tests, especially lately. And you, you just, you got it. You never know where it's coming from. You never, who's going to get it. You don't know all those things. So just wear the goddamn mask, please. And thank you. And tune in next week. You're going to watch Raw with me and Jim Ross. There's 26,569 fans in the building. That's right. The WWF and the Georgia dome woo, on the 20 year anniversary. We'll see you next week, right here on grilling Jr. With the voice of wrestling, Mr. Jim Ross. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round. Together, it's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra? I think I can get an extra five to ten. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.